Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing t 1248 to 1261. Tales from Outer Space 1248. Story number one. Human Rage, written by Krumpus 69. Most species grew up in garden worlds, or just fantasy worlds. But there are some species that grew up and evolved on death worlds. I won't bore you with what a death world is. The name explains it all. In all the known galaxy, only one race evolved and thrived on a death world. They are known as a bipedal race that calls themselves humanity. They don't look like what you'd expect from a death world. They don't look strong or ferocious. But it is their mannerisms or the way that they live and fight that makes them death worlds. There were stories of other races picking fights with humans in a bar. One in particular is of a Dothraki male threatening the offspring of a human. The human ignored the Dothraki's insult, and yet he kept insulting him. When the human had enough, he simply slipped into a blind rage. He brutally kept hitting the Dothraki until he was on the ground. And yet, he kept on hitting and kicking him with the merciless stillness of a trained predator. When the guards eventually arrived, they found the human sitting perfectly still near the body. The human flashed his teeth at the guards and promptly gave himself up for a rest. The Dothraki was beyond any help. The coroner said that he would be beaten to death with his own limbs and that of the human. Just the way that they will snap at any moment and just slip into a blind rage and kill whatever harmed them. That is truly terrifying. I hope that we don't get to see them in war any time soon. End of story. Story number two. Artificial Gods, written by Argus the Cat. The work was almost complete. The tower had a dozen names in a dozen languages and a thousand nicknames in as many minds. But first architect Loth's preference, and the one that seemed to be gaining traction amongst the population, was simply perfection. The tower was a keystone to resemble the city of the gods. When the human nations of the north had come down, crushing states and armies, freeing slaves and righting wrongs, no one had expected that they would win it was a given that the grand, eternal, worldly aspect of divinity that was the elven state would be just so eternal. But then the mixed armies that smashed the gates and thrown down the guard, and while fighting had lasted for months and destruction had run rampant, the end was inevitable. The elves lost, and the nation was not eternal, and so it could not be divine either. The humans, though, they had done something new. They didn't pillage or execute the survivors. Instead, they and their allies, who many of them insisted were equals, quelled the fires, organized the survivors, and set to rebuilding. It was not a great wonder to Loth that so many joined the humans after being defeated, even if they weren't freed slaves. After all, he had, when his mate had been brought home with a knowledge medicine keeping them alive, when his home had been fixed with the help of orc hands, 
and when the first human he had bumped into had simply said, Excuse me, instead of enacting a conqueror's toll, how could he feel otherwise? Overnight, his weekly blood offering had vanished. The ban on anything deemed to be in the realm of the gods was gone. His home city seemed alive in a way that it had never experienced. But his own life was over. Everything he knew turned upside down. And then had come a knock at his door. We need, the human seated at the kitchen table had explained, a symbol. This can't be the temple city again. The thrones of the gods are gone, and they won't be coming back. But this is a city that needs to be something. And so he had turned his skill as an architect to something never done in the kingdom that worshipped and was protected by the gods. He reached for the sky. The city had towers, but they stopped by divine mandate. Before they came too close to the gods' domain, the city had beautiful structures but unless they were worship or sacrifice, they could never be too beautiful. The city had monuments, but only to events the gods had taken an act of hand in. The city had never seen a spire like perfection, and neither had any of the beings assembled under Loth's command when he revealed his designs. At first, he worked because the humans had told him to, but after the foundation was laid, after coming to know the people under him as he never would have had they remained slaves or conscripts or sacrifices, he began to work with something much darker in his heart. A sense of revenge taken out on the gods themselves. If they could not protect his city, his people, he would crack their sky with his work. Loth made friends, almost as many as he made enemies. Not everyone liked his style, his brusque manner, but he was respected, in a way like never before. He saw his mate less and less until they got a job patrolling the growing structure as a god, and the two of them found ways to fall in love all over again. He found meaning in his work. He rediscovered the meaning in life beyond being a tool to a god that wouldn't lift a divine finger to save him. His story was repeated a thousand times over the next dozen years. Prisoners were sent to work on the tower alongside ex-slaves who didn't know how to be anything beside a labor force. Barriers were ground down as walls grew higher and higher, and relationships were painted just as brightly as the designs carved into the stone. And the city regrew below them as they rose into the sky and every day it seemed less and less important if the person who brought him coffee had fur or scales or skin. And there was loss when someone fell from where there was a mishap in the carving spell or when unfinished parts of the stone gave away in an earthquake. And when there was, Loth would find himself walking the polished halls at night, wondering if it was worth it or even right to give the humans their monument at this cost, if they were just as bad as the gods before them. Until one night, finding a chamber lit and occupied by dozens of his team and the work crews and their families, the sight of them with their heads bowed frightened Loth, who demanded to know if they were praying again. 
No, I said. We are remembering. You can join us, if you wish. And he did. And they told stories of their lost brothers and mothers, friends and lovers. And when they talked about Master Seshi, dead in a carb of backlash a month ago, Loth found himself recounting how he had come to love the Naga's unique vision for the carvings on the collar, and how he had become friends with an old man despite the gap of years and race between them. And he found him weeping, together with a room full of people he didn't realize would understand. Years went by. Life was poured into his work. His regrets receded. His vision of the future grew and with them grew hope. His project was no longer a prisoner's sentence, or some grudging, spiteful act against the old gods. It was life, his own, his people's, and perfections itself. Breathed into the tower through hands and hammers and chisels and spellcraft and hopes and dreams of the new people of an old city. And the work continued, and perfection grew and grew until it was almost complete and half the city thought that it would bring the gods back like a beacon to the wrath. And the other half just thought that it would fall over and split the world in half. And then, one day, Loth found himself watching a work crew fuse the last block into place at the center of a wall glass dome and realized that it was done. It was over. Sixteen years of blood, sweat, and tears. Of melted candle wax and ink in the dead of night. Of yelled orders and bargained contracts by day. Sixteen years of life under human rule. And each job given on that first night of surrender was finally, finally done. He hadn't even realized that there was a festival going on in the streets of the city. He was almost in a daze as he stepped outside taking a breath of the city's flavored air. He felt like he'd never been as awake as he was now, and that he could recall the whole construction like he never slept once during it. And maybe it had been a dream after all. As he started to walk down the seemingly endless stone steps to the rings of parks and gardens that surrounded the base of his work, he felt a hand clap on his shoulder, turning. To find the human from so long ago, older now, he smiled. Well, over time and over budget, but you've got your symbol. Was it worth it in the end? He asked as they found a bench to rest on. Worth it? The human asked. Well, you were very bold to ask for it, but even for a species like yours, with all the constant wolves, it must have hurt economically. Ah, you mean the money? No. That wasn't too hard to get, really. And besides, the value of your tower here isn't money. Though, it will spike the economy for the city favorably. The humans said as they leaned back on the marvel of soft-worked stone bench. What, then? What does this get you? Me? Nothing. Humans, you mean. Also, uh, not much. The way you mean it, but, um, you. To you, this tower has been a stepping stone... It has stirred the city instead of segregating it. Not a single species hasn't worked here. Not a single person hasn't known someone who has worked here. Do you care that your personal assistant is a knoll? 
I actually stopped checking after the third one quit. So many had quit. He was a good person, they said. A masterful designer. A visionary. And an absolute nightmare to keep a day planner for. Exactly. And everyone has been feeling that. The slaves and the slavers, working hand in hand to pull the monument to themselves. We could pack up and leave tomorrow, and the city would never go back to the gods and their thirst for blood and death. Would it? Never! The word was spoken with the last of the hate in the Loth's heart. We've gained nothing except for all these hearts and minds who don't even see us as an invading army anymore. We're all human now, and now there's a giant monument to that right in the middle of everyone's home. But there's one need, too, that the spills. Loth gave him a flat look. The years of his work had eroded his patience as slowly as waves on a cliff, and any fluster he might have once had was replaced by a simple go-on hand gesture. The human, Loth realized, had never gotten the man's name, smiled. This is the city of the gods. It was before your old civilization conquered it. It was under your rule, and it won't change just because of a coat of paint. If he burned it to the ground and buried the remains, it wouldn't matter. Someone would show up again in this place and build another damned temple. The city's demands its gods one way or another. He stared up in perfection at the tower that Loth had envisioned in the split clouds, white stone and opal inlays aglow, polished metal statues gleaming in the sunset light. Fountains and waterfalls fed hanging gardens and suspended pools, some of them falling ten, maybe twenty meters to reach their destinations. Loth looked with him, but he'd seen enough of his tower to know what it was by now. He was more interested in the number of people walking through the gardens, also staring up at the newly finished monolith towering over their city. He stood there next to a man who had changed his life, gazing up at his greatest work. And as he did so, he began to realize that this couldn't be his last work. The hanging gardens weren't perfectly aligned. The white stone didn't quite work. The curved crane shape on the top half of the tower just felt a bit off. He could do better. As he pondered his next project, perhaps something more down-to-earth and simple to relax for a bit, he said, Maybe the city doesn't need gods anymore. The human was already walking away, leaving Loth to his ambitions. Maybe it already has new ones. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1249 Story number two. Thoughts and Prayers Written by Hypothetical Shagath Every time, every time the data weave carried the news of some calamity in one of the accorded territories, they responded. The humans' worlds were poor, sparsely populated, only one star's worth of territory. Their people were only able to permanently inhabit perhaps 10-20% of the surface of their world, but they were admirably industrious in the rest. He had to give them that. Every time they somehow managed to fill a cargo vessel with aid and a few specialists, they'd launch their ships across the stars with a response time that would beggar many of the larger signatories, meager though their offering may be. They would not, could not, go without offering what they could. They were for the poor neighbor, 
that everyone appreciated having on the block who had a noticeable benefit to every project they volunteered their resources to. Some civilizations tend to be quiet, barely bumping elbows with their nearest peers. There were several monastic convocations who spanned broad arcs of space, but rarely spoke up in the Grand Councils. Sometimes colonies focused their efforts on expanse, or an empire closed its borders due to internal strife. Just happened sometimes. However, it happened. It was years before the community at large had noticed that a wedge of space had got quiet. A wedge that had started up in the upspin outer part of the arc and worked its way slowly deeper. Some queries had been logged, but there was always some more urgent call for action and kept the Accord Territory's attention. Meetings were being held with the Grand Council to see if an expedition could be arranged to confirm all was well with the Quiet Zone. Perhaps the inhabitants had found an especially intriguing thread of philosophy that they wanted to meditate on. Perhaps the locals were throwing grand festivals and didn't want to down armed roadies making a mess of things. Perhaps someone had decided to wage war of expansion without first filling out a form Bellacrose 83D or Intervention Packet 27.6-D. The council was in the middle of the third day of votes on approving a meeting's agenda, when the ship popped out of a blink drive at the edge of the council station security cordon. From the initial information... It belonged to one of the police navies that were in the quiet zone, one of the mid-high-end ships. Something had clearly sheared off the back third at an angle. War is a tricky word. Sometimes a war is fought without any weapons ever leaving the arsenal. Sometimes enough participants die to haunt a sector forevermore. But nobody will meet a historian's eyes and call it a war. There's still a debate whether this counted as a war or an industrial accident. The survivors on the ship gave a testimony to the Grand Council. Machine ships arrived at the edge of their sovereign territory and started capturing every physical object large enough to track on sensors. Any attempts to object led to the transmission source being sought out as the next harvesting site. All raw materials, from biomass to minimal resources, appeared to be converted into more ships. The human representative in the lower council was recorded expleting in 13 languages and saying something into a red-colored communit in their active podium about von Neumann scenario. The rest of the council was somewhat preoccupied and calling up a scenario calls for an aggressive fleet of this nature. The peacekeeper fleets and the more militant council members were called to action per the accords. Near the end of the meeting, as representatives were hurrying to break and discuss with their governments, the human representative gave an expected vow of aid as well. Though, with their obvious lack of a navy, they promised material supplies and that they would be sending thoughts and prayers. The harvester war went as expected. The factory harvester ships would slice apart any vessel that they were able to break from the formations and focus upon, soon fabricating new harvesters. It became a war of attrition, of grand maneuvers and cunning ambushes, sheer, unrelenting drive and resolute defense. Throughout the fleets, members of the various races were lauded as heroes, grand tacticians, brilliant engineers, many 
So many selfless martyrs. Individuals taking a broken ship to detonate it in the midst of an enemy formation, allowing their allies time to regroup. But attrition favored the machine. Human volunteers and war aid showed up in almost every engagement as time wore on. There weren't many of them in the grand scheme of things, but they made their presence felt. All the while, they swore the same thing. Humanity was sending their thoughts and prayers. It was a grim, bemused line all of their allies heard time and time again. Back at the human's world, life continued. Shipyards were brought, shipyards were wrought. At the edge of the system, they built a blink gate of unprecedented size, large enough to be able to reach up and down the arm. When challenged on this, asked why they didn't use those resources to aid the war effort, the humans rebutted with a statement of how better could they send their thoughts and prayers than with a gate that could reach all of accorded space. As the gate was powered on for the first official jump, Council signatories caught the edge of the message beamed at it. Terra actual, Terra Nova, gate open, thoughts and prayers clear. Odd, as celebratory messages just go. But anyone who'd worked with humans had grown inured to their quirks. The fact that all human craft were making best possible speed for the far side of the nearest planets sheltering from the gate was also odd. But gates could be uh, impressive if they detonated mid-transit. What followed was lost to senses as gravitational wake of something washed over the observer vessels. Something big. Something fast. Over the system-wide communications, humans could be heard cheering, popping open celebratory beverages, and widely repeating the phrase, thoughts and prayers. The peacekeeper fleet had assembled in a quiet swath between the stars. It was a bit ragged at the edges, with no ships present unscathed from the ongoing conflict. The various admiralties stood on their ships, largely wondering the wisdom of this plan the humans had somehow talked them into. A heroic stand that would make or break the defenses, draw enough of the harvester armada out into the void, and break them. That their remainder would be easy hunting. A fine, heroic battle for the ballads in history books, harrowing to face in person. The humans, however, had run the numbers, checked the approach vectors, and cross-checked all top 100 probabilities. This mad plan of theirs had the best chance of success. The human admiral certainly was infectious as well. Our thoughts and prayers will be with you, indeed. Ahead of the fleet, the stars began to shimmer as the harvester vessels began insinuating themselves into the area in their version of a blink jump. The fleet had been wide-casting in the direction of harvested regions for some time now. Maximum power, all ships, calling the enemy to come, one, come all, to win, all, four. That was an awful lot of harvester ships. The stars ahead of them were teeming with new lights, seething. Amongst themselves like vast schools of deep-sea fish, like swarms of locusts, like machines set on eating everyone and everything. The human, of course the human, had a near-manic grin on his face. Of course it did. The ship swayed, like an ancient nautical vessel, twice as someone maneuvered their ship too close to the flagship. 
The lights flickered as the gravitational backwash flowed over the circuitry. Wait. The fleet is still. Silent. Static. Poised. Silence on the bridge, then threat response, first from the crew, as their instincts scream about something being different. Wrong. Then the sensors tell them that their eyes had caught, but discounted. To either side of the fleet, vast portions of space had disappeared. Walls of darkness hemmed them in. The human was now laughing, and the Admiralty recognized the specific sound after a moment. This was, Something terrible is about to happen to my foes. <laughs> Admiralty of the fleet, might I present to you the Nova Breaker class emergency response vessels, thoughts and prayers of the Terran Home Sector Fleet, designed to be the flagships of our emergency response fleet in the face of stellar instability or cataclysmic tectonics. They are capable of pushing around entire arcs of asteroid belts, redirecting stellar geysers, or shifting planetary plates in a pinch. The human animal fished a pair of sunglasses from his pocket and placed them on, turning to face the meter-tall tactical screens as the twin walls of stars' burnt darkness erupted in a star-hot fury, scouring away another dire threat. End of story. Story number one. Human Proofing, written by Adriel. Have you ever tried to give a human out of something? I have, and it's an extremely difficult task. Most species seek a keep outside and do just that. For humans, it makes them curious. Let me start from the beginning. I work as a security contractor, and my current contract involves securing a human elixir called wine. Basically, you let the slurry of plant produce sit in a container for several months, and it turns into something quite tasty. All I have to do in order to get paid is keep it under lock and key for eight months, and I get paid. However, these humans really are determined to get to it. My client told the human that we had three metric tons of the stuff in storage. Within six hours, it was raided by pirates. So, naturally, for the next batch we hired more guards. They hired more pirates. Then we tried taking the security up to eleven. We had amp mines, a network of self-replicating attack drones, blazer nets, and enough anti-armor shells to level a small mountain. The humans brought capital ships. To be clear, the wine was worth nowhere near close to the cost of the strike force that they used to steal it. I'm told that they took it as a challenge. Refusing to try that again, we tried a different approach. We purchased a small moon that had been mined for rare battles. The result was a single narrow mine shaft leading to the core of the moon, which was hollowed out. Being made almost entirely of titanium, no one was going to break through. The gate was designed to vaporize anyone that went through. Due to electrical interference, it would only work about 80% of the time. Apparently, when you tell a human that they will probably die... But if they don't, you get some very expensive wine. A lot of people show up to take those odds. Feeling desperate, we hired several police officers to stand guard. Anyone who would try to steal the wine would get a warrant for their arrest. It was stolen, and people who stole it left their IDs behind. I'm told that they are using their wanted posters as a trophy now. 
Now I'm going to try and put the wine in a research station positioned in the corona of a star. Hopefully, being hot enough to turn most metals into plasma will deter those humans. I'll get paid uh, one of these days. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1250 Story number one. A hive mind's opinion are the humans. Written by Zack the Master. We are the Eugeria, the hive mind, as the individuals call it. We are the oldest, wisest, and most powerful being in the galaxy. We believe that it is best for the individuals to join the mind, or form their own mind. Some accepted the invitation to perfection. Most fight back, but they join with enough force. That was how all species we came across reacted. Until we found the humans. Humans weren't the strongest, smartest, or most long-lived individuals. Perfectly average. That wasn't a problem, Following tradition, we sent autonomous drones to introduce ourselves and invite them to join the Egeria. The drones never came back. Now, this wasn't the first time they didn't return. Other individuals have been hostile before. We just assumed that these humans would put up a fight. Second invitation drones were sent, with combat drones in case the humans attacked. These drones did come back, however, with news the Egeria had never seen before. The first drones weren't dead. They escaped the mind. This has never happened before. We didn't know how to react, so we sent more drones to learn what truly happened. Roughly half the drones were disconnected from the mind. We sent in a fleet to eliminate the threat. The half the combat drones became individuals, and the fleet was destroyed by infighting. We decided to ignore the humans. They were a disease to the Egeria, but they lacked the knowledge of space travel to reach us, and the rogue drones didn't have the information needed to go on the attack. The humans will be contained. That was until the human satellite landed on one of our planets. We lost contact one cycle later. I, we, we don't know what happened. The only information the Egeria received was a little bit of human culture. They're so creative. Humans aren't the strongest, smartest species. But they have something no other species, the Egeria, I, have ever seen before. They love their individual. All other species beforehand at least understood the importance of unity. If they didn't join us, they would have formed a mind of their own. Humans can't make a hive mind, even if they tried. They're too different. We fear what'll happen if they make it out of their solar system. But I secretly hope they do. End the story. Story number two. The second worst sound, written by Ack 1308. Do you know what the second worst sound you can hear in a spacesuit? Let me tell you a story. This happened back when we were all still constructing L5 Megaplex. 
long before it was sealed and aired up. I'd been in orbital construction for almost the day it became a thing, so I ended up as a leading hand. We had construction going on 24-7, with three rotating crews, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. I was a part of Alpha Crew. We were using a Stillwell variant of the Borden EVA suit, simplified for ease of use. It was basically a bag of air that was cinched at places so that we could bend our arms and legs, and with a radio that transmitted non-stop from the moment you put on the helmet. Even if we ran out of oxygen, the suit itself held a good ten minutes' worth of air. This had saved more lives than I could count back in the day. The very worst sound that you can hear in a spacesuit is a hissing of escaping air. It echoes weirdly, but you always recognize it immediately, and you can tell where it's coming from, because there's a cold feeling in that area. Not from the cold of space, anyone who uses that term has never gone off-planet, but from a drop in temperature associated with lowering of pressure. Pure physics. If you hear that noise, you've got between ten seconds and a minute to get into pressure or to get a buddy with a patch to slap it over your leak. We all carry patches all the time, despite the fact that we couldn't reach 70% of the vulnerable areas on our own suits. Your patches could save someone else's life. I had occasion to use mine on more than one occasion, and I was damn glad that I'd made sure that they were there. What's this got to do with the second worst sound that you can hear in a spacesuit? I'm getting to that. On every work crew, everywhere, you've got jerks. You know the one I'm talking about, that guy. The one who gets on everyone's nerves, but doesn't cause quite enough discord to warrant firing him. It didn't help that we had a pit bull for a union rep at the time. Working construction at a Lagrange point has a huge boost to the paycheck, and he was bound and determined to make sure nobody got fired without absolute vacuum-tight reason. Useful to the rest of us most of the time. But just this once, we'd have been delighted if he looked the other way for a while. On Alpha Crew, the jerks were... Well, he was still around, so let's call him Lenny. Lenny was a friendly guy, liked to get along with everyone. That was actually part of the psych profile to work deep space orbital construction. We were packed together like sardines when off ship so we couldn't have any grumpy loners. But Lenny was a backslapper, everybody's best buddy. The trouble was, he also liked a little excitement, and he liked to prank people. He always passed it off as just joking, but the look in his eyes made it clear that to him it was a subtle dominance game. If he could pull off a practical joke on someone, he'd won. The worst bit was, Every month, we could each order one item from Earth, massing exactly 1,000 grams or less. So every month, he'd have a new practical joke ready to play on us. Most of the guys on the crew weren't on their guard, and all their vigilance was spent watching their backs out in zero pressure, making sure that one of those big girders didn't pop their suits open like a jelly donut the moment of inattention. Everyone has seen stuff like that happen, or knows someone who has. You spend a shift with your head on a swivel, so when you get back to pressure again, all you want to do is relax. It was a perfect underground for Lenny. 
Once every rest period, or maybe two, you would hear cursing coming from one guy or another who'd been caught out with something minor, and Lenny was always right there, grinning and talking nineteen to the dozen. Half the time, he didn't even deny it, and half the time he was caught. He talked the victim around to being a buddy again. Everyone had a sociable personality, after all, and he was more social than most. But then there was Tam. I was never quite sure where Tam's family originally came from. He was little on the swarthy side, but that could have made him an Inuit or a Filipino or even a Maori. Nobody asked, and he didn't volunteer the information. He was friendly enough. I got along with him quite well, but he had a quiet nature, and apparently... He was an absolute prodigy when it came to avoiding being pranked. Then he tried. Oh, how he tried. But no matter how he attempted to set Tam up, the slender young man never quite fell for the trick. Or had a spare towel or whatever. After a while, it became obvious that Lenny was getting more and more aggravated by his repeated failures. And then the normally reticent Tam made an error of judgment. His birthday was coming up, it seemed, and he was getting his favorite dessert sent up when a monthly delivery made over into a squeeze tubes that we all used for food. Breaking the habit he maintained thus far, he confided with more than a few of us that he'd been missing food from home, and how much he was going to enjoy his birthday. You can guess what happened next. Then he learned about this and by one means or another, he managed to get his hands on the shipment before the rest of us. By the time Tam got his package, it contained basic everyday squeeze tube, not the special dessert he'd been sent. The look of dismay on his face when he tasted the contents was almost comical. And then he turned to look at Lenny, who had just pulled out a different-looking tube. Lenny, you should give that back to me, Tam said. It's mine. Looks like mine, buddy. Lenny knew Tam wasn't going to physically attack him. That would be grounds for instant dismissal from the crew. He twisted the cap off to taste the contents. Damn, that is nice. Do not eat that, Lenny, Tam warned. You should not be eating that. Give it back to me. Think I'll have some more of my dessert. Lenny decided and sucked down almost half the tube in one swallow. God damn, that's good. I'd been in another part of the barrack satellite, and I entered the common room just in time to see and hear the spit. Looking at the attitudes of the two men and the triumphal look on Eddie's face, I connected the dots at a moment. Lenny, I said flatly, hand it over now, or I will be putting your name for theft. Then he rolled his eyes. Yes, Dad, he said mockingly, putting the lid back on the tube and he tossed it towards Tam. I was done with it anyway. He left the compartment, and I went to Tam. The young man was looking at the depleted tube in his hand, and with an unbearable expression on his face. Hey, I said, you okay? He raised his head to look at me. My sister made this for me, he said flatly, for my birthday. Lenny really should not have eaten it. I told him not to eat it. I took a deep breath. If you want to put in a complaint about him, I will consign it, but uh, you will not take matters into your own hands. Am I understood? Having a grudge on a groundside worksite would be bad enough. If two guys working orbital construction decided that they had one another at any time, people could die. He shook his head. No, I'm not the vengeful sort of person. 
I wash my hands of him. Let karma do what she will. Which lined up with what I knew of him. All the same, I made a mental note to have him swap with Davidson from Bravo Crew for a week or so, until whatever temper he had cooled down. It was natural to feel anger about that sort of thing, but in the long run, what did it matter? I'd almost forgotten about the incident when Alpha Crew went out and shift next. Lanny was right there alongside him, making jokes and pulling his weight. I had to give that to the man, prankster or not. He could do a full shift of work. But then, just as I was passing on instructions to where to swing Gerda G-38, I heard an odd sound over the radio. I frowned, trying to figure out what I'd heard. Lanny, what was that? Sounded like a malfunctioning pressure valve. Nothing, he said shortly. I'm good. Then I heard the noise again, louder and more protracted. It was both familiar and alien. I'd heard sounds exactly like it, back on Earth, but never in tightly packed canister that served for this construction barracks. All few tubes were specifically formulated to minimize bacterial gas production in the gut, for obvious reasons. A few minutes passed, then it started up again. By now... Everyone else had started to pay attention, and cross-chatter was building up. By contrast, Lenny was saying nothing verbally, but he was starting to emulate a faulty internal combustion engine attempting to start on a cold morning. That is, lots of minor eruptions and explosions. I don't know who started laughing, but it was contagious. In seconds, the whole crew was helpless with mirth. The only two people not laughing were Lenny and me. I had no choice but to call tools down. Nobody was paying attention, and Lenny seemed to be building pressure rather than releasing it. Everyone stay exactly where you are. Lenny, with me. I guided the stricken worker back into the pressure, accompanied by an ongoing chorus from his radio. He was lucky that the Stillwell variant prevents the user from removing the helmet while there's pressure mismatch. Or Lenny may well have attempted to do that before the airlock finished equalizing. As it was, when he did remove the helmet to take a deep breath of air, I had to step back from the stench that gusted up from the neck of his suit. The air contamination alarm kit nearby began to shrill. I snapped a mute button on it. I got him down to sickbay, where the medic put him on air mask and examined him, and prescribed a treatment that would calm the ongoing chaos in his guts. In the meantime, he was going to be quarantined from the rest of us. At least, until he ceased producing noxious gas. Afterwards, I confronted Tam. You said you would do nothing to him, I stated. What happened to him was hardly nothing. When you spoke to me, I promised to do nothing, Tam accounted, and I did nothing. What happened to him was a result of what he'd done earlier. The pieces fell into place with a clang like a clumsy docking operation. The tube! Whatever was in it disagreed with him. He nodded earnestly. I told him not to eat it several times. Cynically, I raised an eyebrow. You knew that would egg him on. He looked back at me innocently. I knew no such thing. And, um, where is the tube now? I asked. I recycled it, he replied. My sister is sending me another one. Of course he had, and I would have bet my life savings that this one would be perfectly normal. A tidbit popped up in my head from the conversation I had with him. This would be your sister, the biochemist. Why, yes, he said. 
Why do you ask? I shook my head. No reason. Leaving him to it, I headed back to my office. When Lenny came out of quarantine, he put in the request to transfer to L4 operation. This didn't surprise me much, especially as I knew the inside of his helmet had been papered with air freshness for him to find when he went back to his locker. It appeared the prankster couldn't take a joke at his own expense. L5 was finished on schedule, and Tam went back down to Earth. I encountered him again from time to time. We reminisce about L5, but never about Lenny. But to answer the question, what's the second worst sound that you can hear in a spacesuit? It's not the noise of escaping air. It's the noise of escaping gas. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1251. Story double one. On humans, written by Guncaster. They are not chosen by the Void. The Void is chosen by them. They cannot harness its power because of some underlying truth, some law. They control it because they believe they can. They are the only species capable of self-delusion that even forces beyond existence itself are fooled. A species of lies, charlatans, degenerates, and hedonists, created by an even more primitive predecessor, as an idealized version of themselves, an affront to the natural order by definition. They alone can believe something while knowing that it is illogical and true. They have given aspects of unknowable emptiness names, categorized them, forced them into a grid of scientific laws and principles. As long as their scientific procedures are fulfilled, the void behaves according to that science. But they are not scientific species. They are incapable of grasping the basic laws of reality without breaking them down into simpler concepts that their primitive mind can process. Their science is as much empirical logic as it is ritualistic mysticism. On more occasions than I am willing to admit, I have witnessed their scientists will a piece of what they call void tech into function through guesswork and prayers. Know this, my kid. They are creatures of magic to fancy themselves creatures of science. If you ever face one of their kin who is aware of this fact, who has fully embraced their contradictory, dualistic nature, pray. End of story. Story number two. Ode to a Stick, written by Admiral Starnight. Settle down, everyone. I know you all just got in from your morning meals, but please, I have a job to do. And remember, you all signed up for this class. The professor clacked his head, scales together loudly, and all the younger Zahn settled down. Almost close to being fully mature, the Zahn in the class were proud creatures, jostling for the best seats, measuring head scales and comparing the patterns on their tails. Dominance always needed to be settled at that age, so the professor just let them do as they must. So it took him a minute for them to all properly work out where they belonged and turn full attention to the older Zahn that had led this class. Now, in the last class, we had moved on from the mid-history to recent, including beginning the chapter of our race's recent interstellar wars. You were all assigned to read the requested text up to Section 10. The most recent war, the professor paused. Thoughts? Ideas? I cannot believe that we had won twenty wars before losing the most recent. 
one of the more boisterous males called. That is a disgrace to our nurse's name. Murmurs of agreement came from most of his classmates, and even the professor nodded in a non-committal way. Well then, good news I have a special guest to speak with us. The professor walked over to the door, opening it, to let in an older Zahn. He hobbled onto his three legs, obviously crippled, as he used a long wooden staff that was carved from a dark wood to help support his walk. His head scales were large, but cracked from damage done to them a long time ago. Ragged edges worn soft by regular fighting and wear. He had a nasty scar across one of his eyes, the pupil completely milky. This is Auntie of Demora, former general of the Honor Guards, a veteran of the war with the humans. The class collectively made small smacking sounds with their tails on the ground. Respect and honor given not just an elder, but a veteran of one of the most famous units to ever serve the Zahn nation. Only the most respectable Zahn gained the title of this race name. So, you younglings want to know how we lost the war? His voice was rougher, touched with age and many years spent yelling over gunfire and battle. T shook his head, letting his head scales fall as fat. I want to hear why you think we lost. What has society taught you? They had huge battleships and front armor like head scales. Armor so tough that you could bomb it from orbit without a scratch. They breed too fast. Human viruses were weaponized against us. T waited to see if there were any more guesses before he lashed his tail, leaning a bit harder on his staff. Good guesses, but all wrong. The humans won because... He paused to let them get drawn in, even the most studious of note-takers looking up from the words. Of a stick. What? The male from before exclaimed, Yes, a stick. T moved to lean against the seat of the professor, but did not sit down. The seat was still ill-suited for his crippled leg. You see, you young Zahn all look at images of the humans and assume that because they lack scales, tails, and the same number of limbs, they have to be lesser than us. After all, we have defeated the mighty Kekna with their thousand-limb insects of war, the sneaky Tordred with their color-blending furs, and the abominations of the dark worlds with their endless rage. The humans with their soft flesh and scaleless heads. <laughs> they should have been a breeze. T tapped his tail on the floor, looking around at the Zahn, all of them listening, some with interest, others with incredulity. You see, the thing is a stick is a broad label. More than just what you would accidentally step on in the park as you stalk your friends in the hopes of a winning pounce. It is many things. A piece of wood sharpened with manners, its length of metal used to pry open crates. It's a shard of a ship hull fallen from orbit that can be grasped with all hands. A gun with no more ammo. He sighed. Remembering past battles and hard-learned lessons, it is a lot of things, but in the hands of a human, it is something more powerful. 
He leaned himself upright, beginning to pace, using the staff to punctuate his words rather than tail slap. Or scale crack. It is a noise, purposely made to draw attention away from critical areas. It is cover over a deep hole, broken as heavy feet fall upon it and trapping the naive soldiers to be killed at the enemy's leisure. It is a wedge in the crack of your armor, a tool that is always there for those brave enough to use it. T hissed, glaring around the room as though looking into the past, seeing his men fall before him to these traps laid by humans. That sounds like a load of soft scales, the male barked. Head scales raising in challenge. A stick is a tool for weaklings. We have better guns, better armor, better ships. I refuse to believe that we lost because of a stick. The professor began to speak, but stopped as T raised his own head scales, glaring at the young male challenging his dominance. Oh, well then, small scales, why don't you come here and face me? At this insult, the male climbed out of his seat and came to face the veteran. He was well-built for his age, and one day might be a fine lead zan. His muscles were filling out well, and head scales looking strong with satisfying clack that told of a healthy growth. It reminded T of his own youth as the young male faced him with an expression of determination on his face. T shuffled a bit to reposition himself, glaring at the young zan. Well, young one, are you going to charge, or maybe your mother should have eaten your yolks for breakfast rather than incubate you? The barb landed, and the young male charged. Even crippled T moved startlingly fast, using his staff to drive into his stomach, forcing the air out of the youngest youngs. While the male was still wheezing, the staff flipped down, catching behind one knee and sending the zahn flat to the floor at his back. When the young male finally realized he was down, he was staring up at T above him, the bottom of his staff hovering dangerously above one of his eyes, his cracked head scales fully up, and his remaining eye fixed on the haughty young male that had challenged him. You see, small scales, T hissed dangerously, is that when you run the human out of ammo, overheat the energy shells, Kill the tanks, blow up the shuttles, drive off the warships, remove the armor, destroy the weapons. You do all that, and you have a human before you on its knees, its clothing torn, its bright red blood mixing with the dirt and sweat of a long battle, seeping from wounds that hadn't yet had time to heal. T paused, leaning over as he placed his staff down next to the young male's head, so that he wouldn't topple over. You have them at your mercy, and you expect them to give up, to do as others might fall with their last bullet, or ask for death. T gave a snort, bitter laugh, but uh, that is when the humans always stagger to their feet, wipe the blood and dirt from their eyes, and stand before you, trembling like a freshly hatched newborn. Their eyes blazing with defiance before they charge at you. He straightened and stepped back to allow the younger male to stand before hitting him hard on one of his arms. Hard enough to sting and dent scales there, but not enough to break one. And trust me, small scales, he growled. They always have a stick, and they always know how to use it. 
That is why we lost. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1252. Story number one. The audacity of humanity. The gods of the galaxy were holding court as they did from an eon to eon. They were gathered to show off their creations and mediate any disputes that might have occurred since the last court. Caranthus, the Supreme, sat on his throne at the center of the council. He'd been there for billions of years of councils and, in general, was quite bored with the entire thing. Millions of species each sent a gestalt of themselves as a representative to the court. Rarely, the same species attend more than one council. It was always the same. The god of each species would bring their species in front of them. He would greet them and ask each three questions, to which they would answer with intimately long and boring answers. Who are you? What do you desire? And finally, what do you believe? He had heard every answer innumerable times. Nothing was a surprise. Nothing was new. Everything was boring. This council was nearing its end. The next to last species was on the podium and was ending its presentation. Only one more to go, and then he was free of this tedium for another eon. They left the podium, the species and their god. Slowly, the sole species remaining walked up to the podium but no god was attending them. Mortal, Corinthus shouted. Where is your attending god? The creature stood unbowed and defiant. It answered, Now gods all lay in their graveyards of history. None walks by our side anymore. All have met death. Corinthus was a bit disturbed by the answer. If it had been earlier in the council, he might have pressed for more detail. But with it so close to the end, and so near to the party at the end, with its overflowing kegs of ale, rivers of ambrosia, and the never-ending plates of the finest delicacies the galaxy and her progeny had to offer, he just wanted to get it over with. Very well then, his voice boomed. Tell me, who are you? The figure on the podium said with a clear voice, We are humanity, creators and destroyers of our gods, Poets of a billion stories. We are your best friend and your worst enemy. The makers and users of Starfire. The masters of our own destiny. The sheer audacity of their statement took Corinthus back. Do you know to who you speak, mortal? He shouted. Of course, they answered. Being surprised by the first answer and stunned by the next. For the first time in many councils, unsure exactly what to say next. Garanthus just skipped to the second of the questions. Mortal, what do you desire? He said, sounding a little less sure of himself than before. We have all that we desire. We have the strength to take as we wish, the mind to understand the unknown, the courage to face the horrendous, and the determination to never despair. There is nothing that you can offer us that we won't achieve on our own. Garanthus again was shocked. Never before had any species claimed so much and with so few words. This humanity had no fear of him. They had no hesitancy when addressing their betters. They acted like there was beneath them. A little quiver entered his voice as he asked the final question. Humanity, what do you believe? The avatar of humanity smiled a little bit before answering... 
We believe, it paused, that you are in our seat. End of story. Story number two. Human Food, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Excerpts from the Galactic Legal Quorum's Diplomatic Corps Training Manual on Human Foodstuffs. The horrors of the Terran culture do not stop at their sports. Human cuisine can be disturbing, and as such, so fonts with delicate constitutions are an aversion to violence, slaughter, or general mayhem may stop reading now. Introduction, Human Foodstuffs. The lactic secretions of several domesticated animals from Earth, notably bovines, both taurus, can be harvested and made into a variety of human consumables. This process can be uh, upsetting. It shouldn't be noted that while the milking of cows does not harm the animals, they are also used for their meat. Sophants who reject food's more moral reasons may consume dairy mostly without mori, except for the kilviks and minotaurs. As usual, use your own discretion. This milk, as humans call it, can be consumed fresh from the cow, although virtually all consumer options are pasteurized for safety. The substance can also be processed using enzyme originally derived from the stomach of an infant post torus, which results in the substance commonly called cheese. While cheese is a type of food, there are a vast variety of subtypes that exist, most of which range from pleasant to mildly off-putting. However, some especially rare regional and specialty varieties are outright horrors, including mold-infested rinds on the outside or strains of mold running throughout the cheese itself. In one remarkable version, which is outlawed even by humans, but continues to be produced and eaten by a small but dedicated minority, Live insect larvae infest the cheese. Not all dairy products are horrifying. For example, letting the liquid settle and harvesting the lipid-heavy portion which floats to the top yields a liquid called cream. This cream can be further processed through vigorous stirring into a substance called butter. Butter is a common flavoring agent in many types and styles of cuisine from Earth, and is making inroads into a number of the GLQ species' cooking repertoires as well. The milk and cream can also be processed into frozen confection called ice cream. It should be noted that ice cream can contain huge number of different flavoring agents, ranging from fruits to various unbaked and baked doughs, as well as nuts, extracts, and candies. Rocky Road noticeably contains extracts, nuts, and candies all in the same flavor. As such, ice cream is on the extreme caution list along with soups and stews and green salads and other multi-ingredient foods which may pose a high risk of containing some element which is toxic to non-Terran consumers. Chapter 3. Dairy Human Foodstuffs This section requires a military clearance to access and is recommended for obligate carnivore and warrior costs only. If a human asks if you would like to be attend a barbecue, politely decline, and notify a superior to assess the situation diplomatically. Chapter 8. Barbecue. Human Foodstuffs. While Terra has many cultures, it has just as many foods for each culture. Each culture and its subsequent cuisine may also have regional varieties. 
Some notable versions of the varietal cuisine on Earth include classic French from the northern and southern region, as well as American barbecue from the northern and southwestern and southern regions as well. Fusion cuisine is also common. This is blending two or more cultural varieties of cooking to produce a third, blended style of cooking. It is advised that all GLQ members avoid any type of fusion cuisine, as it may contain unexpected ingredients which may cause serious or life-threatening reactions in the consumer. Also of note is that due to the density of organic materials grown and produced on Earth, an effect of its high gravity, most Terran food is incredibly high in caloric value. In addition, many prepared foods are high in lipids and proteins, which will require GLQ members to closely monitor their foodstuff intake, so as to not cause health issues due to overcompensation. However, due to the same fact, Terran food makes for excellent emergency supplies, and a small stockpile is recommended for any emergency preparedness kit, where compatible biology allows. If you are unsure how to prepare something, asking a human chef will always garner you suggestions and possibly offers of assistance. Be sure to proceed with caution, but allow them to assist. In return, a common token is to purchase of several of the beverages known as beers for the chef's help. Owing to the death world nature of terror, it is rife with many types and subtypes of foodstuffs. With caution and diligence, an exciting and expensive feast awaits those adventurous individuals willing to suss out safe menu items. In conclusion, human foodstuffs. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1253. Story number one. How Humanity Embarrassed One of the Galactic Superpowers. Written by Nuclear Justice 2. Humanity. A wonderful topic to talk about, especially in front of the Glotari. You can expect them to steam off from the room that you currently reside in in a rage and humiliation. And why do they do that? Because humans defeated the mighty Glotari Armada, which at the time had about 700 cruisers, with each one having lasers capable of cutting ships apart. How many ships humanity had? About a hundred. You might say that's impossible. No one could achieve that. And you are terribly wrong if you think that. To humans, the word impossible is nothing more than a mere challenge. But now, I answer the question you want. How do they manage to defeat them? The answer is simple. A human invention called Mirror. End of story. Story number two. Upliftment written by I.C. What's New R.P. Guru was curiously frustrated by this new species. He was the junior ambassador for the serene species, and yet it was constantly being thwarted in his attempts to obtain any information. The latest block was from his own ed administrator, so all he could do was rustle his wings and clean an antenna. A third hand held the data slate, though he had long since committed everything to memory. Humans, a mammalian omnivorous species that has recently been found capable of FTL travel, initial contact with their ambassador was one full cycle ago. A survey team was dispatched to the origin system of the FTL route, and the following was determined. 
Humanity currently spans one home planet, one planetary colony, and several mining colonies of varied types throughout the system. Their technology, though primitive, does show a remarkable redundancy for primary systems, indicating a possible protect-the-herd mentality. Key points were reinforced with defensive measures, while not dangerous to anything larger than a frigate. This indicates that predatory behavior might still be ingrained within their culture. Population of the home planet is around 2 billion members, with the rest of the system contributing similar numbers. Military is near barren, as indicated earlier, only by key weapon emplacements. Conclusion, inhabiting a system of vast untapped, as of yet, resources, bringing the system into a fold will be of the utmost importance. Due to the lack of technology, the Council recommends the standard integration package. As a show of good faith, a data connection node was created and placed in human space, though it is of limited functionality. Gurul was contemplating actually walking down with the visitor wing of the diplomatic halls, a truly desperate gambit, when his door chimed with an official visitor. Come in, he yelled. Ambassador Zyke walked in and turned twitching in excitement. Ah, young Gurul, come, it is time. The humans have come up with their official response. Not even giving him time to respond, the elder Serene turned and made his way out of Garul's limited office, wings twitching with excitement. Garul practically leapt over his desk in his excitement, hurrying towards the council chambers. I'm finally going to see a human, he squealed in his mind, careful not to make a sound out loud. He didn't want to get banned from the hall. No one is this close. Entering the top of the hall, as was proper with one of the Trinity groups that had started the alliance, Garul made sure that he was out of the light of Ambassador Zyke while still maintaining a view. He could and would likely use the data slate to zoom in, but he wanted his first experience to be with his own eyes. He looked over the railing, through the four layers of ranking members, until he saw at the bottom the illuminated platform for the human. Zyke struck a gong thrice, once for each of the trilogy, and in walked the human. Garul blinked several times, turning his head in confusion before looking at his data slate to confirm what he was seeing. The human looked like no other species that he had encountered. Bipedal, of which nearly a third of the alliance was, wasn't too unexpected. No, it was the color of the human, so dark as to remind him of the moonless nights on Ceres Prime. And his teeth, the shocking witness of them, clashed horribly. The only hair on the creature who claimed to be a mammal with two small tufts above the eyes and two rows of protective lids of said eyes. Greetings and welcome to the meeting of the Alliance. Today we are here to extend an offer of admittance to the newest race to achieve FTL travel and join their brethren in the stars. Welcome to the humans. Polite greeting noises were made at Zyke's address and the human bared his teeth and slightly lowered his head. Humanity would like to mirror your greeting, speaking on their behalf. I am Muhammad ibn Abdurad. May our meeting bear fruits that all may enjoy. Garul tilted his head as he pondered the human. Interesting was the word he came up with. While meeting with unknown species, to open with a farming reference, but there was something about that first sentence... No doubt, the herbivorous species were already placated, but to mirror the greeting, a possible hidden warning to those who may be predatory. 
He rapidly blinked a few times, turning back into what Ambassador Zyke had been saying. All will be enjoyed, whatever fruit this meeting brings. However, there are several difficulties that are required to overcome before the fruit may be harvested. Indeed, for many fruits must be cultivated in trees for years before they bear fruit. So we have found a new species to be. So, human, can you tell us about how you are to repay us for years spent aiding humanity to reach our technological heights? Are we to be poor farmers, struggling with a field for years, accumulating massive debt, and hope that in twenty or thirty cycles it may finally become profitable? The human narrowed its eyes and spoke. Of course not, Ambassador. However, you paint a very narrow picture of things. While we might not match you in certain aspects of science and technology, we do have a worth of knowledge on other subjects. Of course, of course, Zyke rudely interrupted, waving a claw at the human's argument. Likely things we too have researched. Let us face the facts, though. You have but one system. Your people inhabit only two planets. In order to uplift you, the Alliance would have to spend massive resources. Resources that will need to be paid back. Here is what we refer to as a standard alliance package. I'm sure you'll find it acceptable. The human looked at the data sheet for the longest time, tabbing through the pages and looking more and more distraught. Of course it did. With how the thing was structured, most species spent thousands of years paying off their debt, and these were the ones that had multiple systems. The poor humans would likely be indebted to the alliance for the eternity under the compound interest, and that was being generous. Eventually, the human spoke again. Very well. I had hoped that it wouldn't come to this, as humanity came to this alliance with open arms and friendly intentions. For the record, we reject this proposal in its entirety. Furthermore, as per Alliance Regulation 15.1a, I am hereby issuing a declaration of hostilities. Any species that comes to my office in the next ten days and offers friendly relations shall be exempted from hostilities. At the end of ten days, at ten in the morning standard time, any species of the Alliance that has not offered friendly relations shall be considered an antagonist. All such antagonists will be attacked to exactly two hours later. I will be present in the hall at that time, ready to negotiate cessations of hostilities. With his warning given, the human swiveled on his feet and strode with purpose out of the room. Hostilities? You and what weapons? Zyke laughed at the retreating human, though I personally held some reservations. Ten days later, and the entire station was abuzz. Garul had heard through several of his contacts that the two herbivorous species and all three of the lower-tier species had accepted the human's offer. That was fine, as no second-tier or above members had even given the offer a passing thought. With those species contributing over 95% of the military might, the humans had no chance. He agitatedly checked his data state, seeing that it was one minute until the humans' deadline. The council chamber was quiet, and everyone had their eyes, or whatever side appendages they used, to their data slates. One minute passed. Two minutes. Three. At five minutes past the deadline, Drake started laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> so tell me, human, where is this dag of yours? 
<laughs> all of our shipyards are intact. All of our bases are fine. In fact, I don't see a single shot having been fired. The human's return laughter sent chills through me. It was no booming thing. No, this, this was a low chuckling. Similar to chittering teeth of Sarkon hunting Belarvi. <laughs> and what made you think that I was talking about attacking your military? The human asked. And everyone on the top tiers froze. If not the military, then what have you attacked? Your economy, the human replied. Your technology is really impressive. Unfortunately, your cyber warfare techniques are toddler-esque at best. It took the children of our mining colonies, yes, what you'd think is our home planet is nothing more than a mining colony, less than ten minutes to get around your blocks on a data node that you so helpfully left in place. You want to know what we attacked? Everything. All research and designs at your science centers are now ours, including military, I might add. All the knowledge required to uplift our technology so that it matches yours, we have. In its place, we have subtly altered specific things. Any new warships you may try and make will have fatal flaws. Hyperdrives won't work. Laser weapons won't have the capacitance to fire. Fuel economy will plunder. But that's not all. Every member species has their slush funds. Black holes where money goes to secret projects. Humanity thanks you for all these alliance credits and the fact that you set a limit to trigger a transaction review at one billion credits. Your accounts were drained in seconds, sent through a dizzying set of numbered bank accounts, intermingled, dispersed, and intermingled again, until you would need a dedicated supercomputer to spend nearly 30 years to untangle it. Your military fleets will not receive orders unless we allow them. Your military won't be paid unless we allow it, as we now control those accounts. Those who still call friends will notice that their crippling debt, no doubt loaded onto them the same way you tried to load onto humanity, has been paid in full. As you ambassadors can see, humanity has the power to mirror your acceptance into the Alliance. Would any member species wish to sit down and talk about being accepted into the newly formed Terran Alliance? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1254 Story number one. Ambushed. Written by Warpmind. The Thaw was running. The whole invasion plan had gone up in someone's cloaker and burst like an overripe fruit. Damn, Hygamon, for deciding these humans look like a soft, easy target. The Empire of Saul, looking decadent and politically fractured, apparently only needed an outside enemy to unify, to all together to strike as one against an alien assailant. Zartha was cursing the old gods and the politicians of New. He blamed them equally for dumping him in this mess. The first strike fleet had come as a surprise. And so High Command had declared. Bloody humans hadn't agreed with the bat bit. Apparently, they had excellent early warning systems in place and seemed to know ahead of time where the Valorous Mazana fleet would land its troops to take over the human homeworld. Zarthot's platoon had set foot somewhere in this human's home called Arizona. 
And just as the last soldier set foot on Earth, everything started to explode for no apparent reason. It took two local days before the survivors received a data update with some local rules of engagement. Things that seemed mostly strange to Zathar. Restrictions on interactions with civilians. Restrictions on weapons. Restrictions on this. Restrictions on that. Ah. And then there was the thing that grew more interesting by the minute. Restrictions on what one could do with POWs. And requirements to provide medical care and shelter. Apparently the humans had codified most of these a few hundred years ago. And decided to keep them to avoid repeating old mistakes. Zartha didn't mind following these new rules if that meant captivity would not lead to torture and a slow, agonizing death for someone's entertainment. Zartha barked a few commands to Zahar on the Mahan, his two remaining squadmates, as they pushed into the abandoned house with a nice lawn. Seemed this area was recently abandoned. The humans were quick to evacuate their lower-density settlements. It was... quiet. No radio chatter, no sound of gunfire. Nothing. If not for the fact that Zarthar's entire platoon was almost obliterated, he could have been comfortable here. He took his helmet off and laid down on a strange chair, seemingly designed to fit multiple people. Just as Zahar yelled at the adjacent room, Sir, great news, come and see, there's food here. Zahar groaned softly with fatigue settling in, then got up and launched towards where the shot came from. Oh God, I'm ravenous. What do you have? Zahar, the lovable idiot he was, grinned and set the large cookpot of some kind down on the table. It's come some kind of stew. It's still hot. Zahar looked at the cookpot, then Zahar, then looked around the machine. This area was supposed to have been long abandoned. If this is still hot, then, um, someone... Zahar heard Mashan yelp in surprise upstairs, and then there was a loud explosion as his eyes saw pure white, and his ears started ringing, and then everything faded to black. Zahar hissed in discomfort, feeling cold, wind on his skin, and a strange wooden surface moving under him. Slowly, cracking open an eye, he saw a yellow-haired human with a strange clothes sitting facing him on some open-topped vehicle. The human turned to face him and began to speak in a strange accent. Hey, you! You finally awake! You were trying to cross the border, right? Walked right into that Imperial ambush. Same as us, um, and that thief over there. End of story. Story number two. You were born in a village with a shrine and a legend. The shrine has four large stones standing in a square with two in the middle that represent fire, earth, wind, water, light, and darkness. There is a legend that says a hero of old was able to see the glow of all four of them. You awaken to Seal Six, written by Perilous Platypus. I awoke in the pre-dawn. There was my favorite time when the village was still at rest and I was free to be as I wished. I made my way from bed to hearth, careful not to stir the slumbering bodies of my family. In spite of my best efforts, all was not still, as a clan of eight tended to be prone to ruckus even at rest. Above the rustling of my brothers and sisters, a snore rang out, 
ruinous in its noise, but unacceptable in it was expected. Bar slept like a hibernating bear and growled just the same. A grin spread, marveling at those who made my life rich. It was for them I worked. Pulling a scuffed bag from its hooks beside the door, I peered open the door, wincing at the squeaking hinge. The bear behind me snorted once, grumbled, and then returned to his rest. I suppressed a chuckle and stepped out into the cool of early morning. The hills beyond our village glowed a dull orange, a harbinger of the day to come and the indication that I best be on my way. My stride slowly lengthened as my legs limbered, the soreness of the days prior slowly fading as I walked the winding paths leading down the slope and into town. I had been apprenticed at a townsmith earlier this summer and had taken the work in earnest, finding satisfaction in assisting in the shaping of metal to the will of my master. With luck, it would be my turn at the hammer soon enough, and perhaps even a small commission work like a set of horseshoes so that I could begin to bring a wage back to my family. I turned a corner, passing between the two multi-story plaster buildings that rimmed the town square. They belonged to the families of Means, their place of prominence marked off both of the intricacy of their homes as well as the proximity to the world stones. The enormous monuments always hung in my mind, playing at the fringes of my consciousness even while my focus was elsewhere. They were a mystery. None could say from where they had come, none could fathom how they had been created. All of the town had were myths and legends. Some spoke of a power of world stones. Some spoke of the heroes that could connect to them. One story rose above them all, eventually becoming the heart of any tale that touched on the behemoths residing in the town square. The Elementalist. She could touch her four corners, earth, wind, fire, and water. The town had been founded upon her legend the extension of her grace, and it had taken a derivation of her title in her honor. Her legend in elementalist blood, and the town crest bore the brown, white, red, and blue of the four elements, a single figure standing at the center at the intersection of the four quadrants. The square would be alive and bustling soon enough as the seekers from the world over would come in hopes of finding a connection to the world stones, and with them, the coin that allowed the town to prosper. I smiled, eager to see the stones. In all of my life, in awe of my life of my father and his father's father, and so on, extending back six generations, none had connected the stones. Not a single one of them, much less a feat of the four corners of the elementalist had accomplished. I continued to hope for it, though I wondered what such an event might portend for the town. The tales of the world stone warned of their power in the same breath as it spoke of their majesty. My feet treaded along the wet cobblestones, the thick soles of my leather boots gripping onto the slick surface. Ahead of the narrow street opened up to the square beyond. I would need to cross amongst the square between the world stones to the streets beyond where the smith bastard Dakin maintained his shop. My pace quickened, eager to be at my destination and prepare for the day ahead. Master Dakin would already be rummaging about. I stepped into the square and stopped. 
a dull glow reflected against the mist that hung in the square, creating a strange prism of light. I blinked, my brain not quite connecting with what my eyes were seeing. My heart thud in my chest, sending my pulse racing and throbbing at my temples. Brown, white, red, blue. I could see them, the four corners, not like before. They weren't stern and cold. They glowed. I could see them. More than that, I could feel them. Feel them beckoning me, calling, whispering, earth, wind, fire, water. My mouth went dry as two new colors appeared, gold and black. The two spires at the center of the four corners glowed too. Life and death. Impossible. Someone was playing a trick, I tried to convince myself, just as I became increasingly certain that it was no prank. The lights might be explained away, but the connection could not. The world stones reached for me, pulling me inwards, claiming me as theirs, imprinting themselves upon me. I felt a great reservoir unlocked in me, unfurling and expanding outwards like a mighty sail gathering all of the wind of the storm within it. Power. I did not understand, did not know what it meant, but I could sense it was just the same as I could sense the strength of my muscles honed beside Master Dakin's forge. The Worldstones had chosen me. Why? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1255. Story number two. Jury rigging written by entangled bottles. So, Alex said with a sigh, what you're saying is that, um, unless we, by some miracle, get some more firepower, we'll all be dead when the raiders get you. Essentially. And I'm the only engineer on board. Correct. And for that reason, you want me to do something about this? Yes. You do know today was the first day in my life I even saw a plasma gun, right? Yes. Normally, we'd let someone as primitive as you tinker with our superior tech. And, by law, we aren't allowed to. But, I'd rather die from a plasma call mouth done than in a raider slave pen. And, hey, maybe by some luck, your primitive machines are similar enough to ours that you find some solution that, um, doesn't leave me dead. Greater. Just greater. Very well. Show me to the available tech, then. Alex couldn't make heads or tails of the alien tech, as expected, but was surprised by the sheer amount of guns available and the fact that they barely had any recoil. If you have this many guns, why are the raiders a problem? Well, um, we only have five guards, and the rest of us would be lucky to hit one with ten shots, even if we all focused on the same guy. We'd never take down his shields. Okay, so basically you just need more projectiles to hit the same spot. At the same time... Well, yes. Got it. Got any duct tape? Thraxel proudly strode down the trading ship, confident that East Raider Band would have no problem capturing the vessel. Scanner showed that the crew that he was boarding had abandoned all non-vital systems, grouping up around the engine room and the life support. Thraxel considered the signatures grouping him proud. Would have been easier to pick them off one by one. But, oh well, this would serve as practice. So long as he cycled his troops well, the enemy should be unable to even dent their armor, past their shields, deciding to follow the cues of the enemy. 
He gathered his forces together and descended on the life support room, mindful not to step into any trap. He moved his forces slowly until only one corridor remained, leading to the life support room. Taking a deep breath, he rounded the corner with his troops, guns raised. In front of him was a little wall of guns pointed at him. For a moment, he failed to even process that. Not even military forces could put that many soldiers so close together. In a flash of light, all the guns fired, and the two soldiers in front of him practically vanished. The Thraxians' own shields issued warnings. Quickly, ducking back into cover, Thraxar struggled to get to his grips. But before he had a chance, the door at the end of the corridor that he was in opened by itself, revealing another wall of guns. What? But there aren't even that many life signatures in that room. It was with another flash of light. Several raiders went down, followed by another flash and another. The entire corridor was filled with projectiles, and soon Thraxor too was claimed by the blasts. In the engine room, Randior, the captain of the trading ship, looked at his terminal in disbelief. Half of the raiders were caught in the automated trap by life support. The rest are moving back to their ship. Crap, Alex gasped. They'll no doubt destroy the ship once they get back to their own. Why? It'd be impossible to reclaim anything useful from the wreckage. Revenge? I mean, we did just kill half the friends. So, uh, what do we do now? Now? Now we follow plan B. The raiders ran towards their ship, desperate to get off this death trap. They rounded the last corridor and came face to face with the trading ship's security and one strange bipedal creature, each of them held seven guns. The raiders barely had time to wonder how, before they were vaporized by the jury-rigged weapons. Randio stared in amazement at the carnage, caught between awe and nausea. Curiously, he tried to pick up one of the weapons the human had fashioned, but found that he could barely even lift it, much less aim it. What is this thing, Alex? That, um... That is what we on Earth call a, a volley gun. End of story. Story number one. Humanity's true art. Paisel, eighth-ring nobleman of the Sabolan Imperium, an ambassador to the Earth Republic, ran quickly past his staff, who were all frantically packing everything that they could be easily gathered. He took a shortcut through the courtyard garden where a pair of guardsmen were burning sensitive documents with their plasma repeaters. He repeated to himself over and over. I do not have the time for this. I do not have the time for this. I do not have the time for this. He paused for a moment outside of the conference room where he straightened his clothing and sash of office. He was appalled to see his cooling slime and stained the sash that was presented to him by the Empress herself. He breathed deeply, calming himself, and he entered the room. Displaying a false appearance of calm that belayed his panic, he greeted the human inside. Sorrowful greetings, Vice President Doniger. I am sorry I cannot give you much time. Our shuttles are landing soon to remove my staff and equipment. My government has ordered the subordinate citizens off of Earth before the Ferenthrax fleet arrives. My Empress regrets that we will be unable to offer any assistance to your people, as the Imperium has declared its neutrality in this conflict. I have also been authorized by the Third Galactic Council to inform you that since Earth Republic is only the provisioning member of the Council, no help can be expected from any other member races. 
He was embarrassed at having blurted out the contents of the message that he received earlier today without proper decorum, but was surprised at the human's calm demeanor. Histothal looked around and pressed the device to his lapel. This has disabled any recording devices, so I may say this privately. Although we are officially neutral, there will be some room on board my private shuttle. I can find some space for your family, and that of your president, if I list them as personal household staff. I can bring them to my homeworld, and I swear by the eighth tentacle of clicks that I will keep them safe. I wish I could do more. He trailed off, sadly. Vice President Doniger gave a slight smile and shook his head. On behalf of my president and myself, I thank you, Ambassador. It is very kind of you, but unnecessary. The president has made it clear that no family members of himself or his cabinet will be leaving Earth until this conflict is over. He paused for a moment, reaching out to touch the small tentacle of the ambassador. But I do appreciate it, Heistel. I surely do. Your kindness will not be forgotten. He straightened up and adjusted his tie. But now I have some official information for you to convey to your government and also to the council. Heistel nodded and activated the recorders again. Vice President Doniger laid his briefcase on the meeting table and extracted a few books, a stack of photographs and a pair of data chips, and spoke with a formality that he'd never heard from the human. I am afraid that the Earth Republic has not been entirely forthcoming with your people. Or to the Council, you are aware that we humans have a long history of fighting amongst ourselves. But no one, not even our citizens, are aware of the full extent of the history. After our last world war, so much was lost, and the founders of the Republic decided that for the mental health and stability of the human race, much of our collective history would be restricted to senior government personnel and our military officers. The vice president pushed a stack to the ambassador. We need you to present this information to your empress and to the council to prepare them for what is about to happen. The ambassador leafed through the ancient pictographs on piles of human bodies, massive war machines, and whole cities that were naught but charred ruins. His eyes raised in horror to the human, who nodded sadly to the ambassador. You see, Heist, though, the reason we have tried to so very, very hard to be peaceful is that we are far too good at war and killing when we roused to anger. When the Vinthrax destroyed our colonies, claiming that we were encroaching on their territory, we were upset, but were willing to withdraw to keep the peace. But when they captured the Ypsilanti and broadcast the execution of all of its children to our colonies, they made massive mistake. They thought that they would demoralize us. They woke something primal in our people. Something we have spent hundreds of years burying beneath the veneer of civilization. The ambassador looked at one of the books. The title caught his eye. He looked to the human. The art of war. This must be a missile translation, sir. War is not an art. The vice president shook his head sadly. You are very wrong, ambassador. For humans, war is an art we have been mastering 
for thousands of years, as the Venthrax are about to find out. He leaned in, his eyes as hard as flint. You have to prepare the council for what is to come. The ambassador whispered, What are you going to do? The vice president activated the hollow crystal, and Heistel recognized the rings of the planet Saturn in the background. What his mind could not cross was the immense fleet that was displayed. Hundreds of massive capital ships surrounded by numberless smaller escort ships. The image disappeared, only leaving the human space with a look of terrible resolve. We are going to paint the whole galaxy in their blood. It's going to be humanity's masterpiece. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1256 Story number one. The Grenadier, written by Rusty the Bannard. Hibax's eye glowed with delight as it took in all the walls of weapons, and so few were recognizable. Hugh and Jamison, what is this? He picked up a long, slender stick. His guide grinned at him, but Hyax's excitement was too strong to cringe in fear, as he had wanted to so many times over the past three hours. That is a Wayfarer Model 2200 bolt-action hunting rifle. It's got a range of 1900 yards and fires 7.62 by 51 millimeter NATO rounds at 5,000 yards a second. I didn't understand a single word of what you just said, and I love it. Hank laughed at that. Apparently it was supposed to be a friendly sound, so he attempted to imitate him. A grating sound emerged instead, causing Hank to pause and pursy snips. Maybe just be, um, yourself, but you don't have to try and to laugh, please. I understand, Hubert Jamison, he acknowledged, moving on to the next question. But what exactly does this thing do? I suppose it could work as a club in an emergency. Hank raised an eyebrow. You really don't understand a word that I just said, he commented quietly, but Hayek politely ignored the faux pas. It's a gun. I do not know what a gun is, Hayek said. Hank blinked slowly at him. But, um, you have projectile weapons. Um, no, Hayek said. We use the Inchungsa, as our ground troops need a ranged option. Those, um, weird giant seagull chickens, Hank responded. What do they do? Aggravate the enemy to death. They expel their stomach acids onto their prey. We tamed them centuries ago for transport and combat. Hank's eyes went wide. Oh, okay, he commented. That's uh, kind of cool. But if you can't take anything down without them, then how are you protect your hulls of your spaceships? A plate of armor sounds uh, expensive. Oh, prohibitively so. Why do you think only the most trusted and skilled warriors are seen in the larger galactic community? Ah, but um, generally speaking, few races even need ground combat at this point. It is the same for you? Yes. I take it the chicken of the sea is more of a status symbol at this point. Indeed. After ten minutes or so of browsing and asking questions of each other, Ajax reached the most baffling item in his collection. Okay, I have to ask, he asked, rotating his topmost segment in amusement. All of these fancy tools, and you still use rocks? Hank was offended. Rocks! Rocks! I'll have you know that these are variable payload remote detonation grenades! Parities for short. 
They have a blast radius of 20 feet and switch between fragmentation, flashbang, smoke napalm, and HMX with the press of a button. And you can even queue up a combo effects if you really want to feck up somebody's day. This time, Hayek's actually felt some concern. You and Jemison, that would kill you as well. Nothing can outrun an explosion. Hank paused, then turned to stare at him wide-eyed comprehension. That's why you weren't understanding guns, he shouted in delight. Hayax, have you ever heard of throwing? The Gint's game? Only if your shoulder joint is absolute crap, which, um, granted, you guys don't have much of one. Maybe I should have seen this coming. Anyway, come with me. I want to show you something. Hayax rustled his pseudopods in a mystified defeat and let the human drag him onto the external field that he called a range briefly admiring the external saturated blue atmosphere of Earth. He nonetheless brought himself back to Hank's demonstration, just in time to see him bend his arm backward at an entirely unnatural distance and whip the rock forward. The grenade sailed through the air, landing at an impossible distance away, and exploded into a combination of heat, light, and shrapnel. And as fascinating as the effect was, Hayax found that he could not care less Human Jameson, your arm, he shouted in horror. Hank just grinned cheerfully as he spun his arm in multiple complete circles. Uh, yep, human throwing is the real deal. Nonsense, we have to get you to the hospital immediately. Dude, I I'm fine. You can drag for yourself. I'm no medical professional, to be sure, but your arm broke off entirely. I really didn't, Hank shrugged. Do not move that arm. The outer shell is the only thing keeping your organs inside. The quick trip to the nearest hospital and a lecture on human anatomy by an extremely amused staff later. Hayax was shriveled up in shame and embarrassment. Now, oh. End of story. Story number two. Napalm doesn't stick to kids. Written by Storm the Castle. Thrust stand in horrified awe at the statement printed on the side of the captain's wall, viewable from any position in the command room from which many day-to-day operations were run. It was painted there, had been for years, though he only noticed what it was actually said, as though they were proud of this knowledge, this barbaric realization. It horrified Thrust. This Achitian, for whom community, and especially the young, were the most precious things in the world. Thrust felt a warmth behind him as he knew to be the captain by its level of radiation and heat, and unpromptly spoke to him. He sensed through what the humans called intuition that he was being regarded strangely by the captain. Captain, said Thrust. Yeah, bud. This statement, it is horrifying in its implications, as well as the categorically untrue. Please explain. Thrust had learned over the year that he'd been assigned that requests posed as polite questions were more likely to receive an answer than ones that didn't sound as though they had an option to not answer. Which one? he asked, but the confusion was only brief. Ah, that that one. Uh, What do you want to know? My, is it written here? Is it some sort of reminder? Thrust had a pit in his lower stomach at the thought of the species that had to be reminded not to use incendiary devices on their own young. Hmm, it is, but not in the manner that you might be thinking. Thrust gently sighed at the reassurance, then prepared himself for an explanation. Previously, Thrust had never enjoyed his scheduled instructionals, even those in his career which he did enjoy. 
but the captain made such things quite lovely. He had a deep voice, even by Hewitt's standards, and a sort of growling timber impossible for the Cheetian that moved through those he spoke to. It sounded like rocks being rubbed against each other, and it pleased Thrust every time he spoke. He even made recordings, albeit secretly, and intended to share them with a few thousand children. The reminder isn't about the napalm, but more about what it represents. You see, some people get so excited about using things that they maybe don't think about the consequences. That is, never more important to remember than when using something that you are unfamiliar with. The captain, deep-skinned with a slightly bulbous belly, leaned back into his plush chair, though never broke eye contact with thrusts as he spoke. When napalm was new, a lot of folks didn't understand what made it different from other incendiaries. They used it because it was new and fancy, and learned the hard way why it was a last resort sort of item. Napalm doesn't stick to kids, is a deliberate oxymoron. It forces you to think about it, forces you to realize that it is untrue, and it is a reminder to everyone on the ship that no one is authorized to mess with anything that can't identify by name and origin. The captain leaned forward, elbows on his knees and asked, Anything that you don't get about that, Thrust? Hmm, not particularly, Captain. Thrust felt it was a good thing to have, especially for a species like humans who tended to play with dangerous particles for fun as much as they did. Though, I shudder to think about how the knowledge was come across. You humans did not meet other species until recently, meaning you only learned about napalm by using it on, uh, each other. Ah, that... The captain nodded knowingly. There is a reason for that, uh, as well, though. Trowley, Thrust, what is the biggest difference between you, Chitians, and we humans, not including the obvious physical traits? This one is easy. I believe our mentality, Captain. The Chitian do not believe in violence is a viable answer to the vast majority of situations. You humans, I have come to understand, feel differently. The captain chuckled. Uh, yeah, you're right again, Thrust. My pa used to say, violence ain't solved your problems, you haven't used enough of it yet. Though, it is a bit more than just mentality. It's more about how we view things. New Chitians live, eat and breathe, forgive and forget. But for a human, if you get us angry enough, we may just come to the conclusion that you'd be in danger to the future family and species. His lean changed, subtly to most, but Thrust suddenly had danger alarms going off in his mind. Get us angry enough, he continued, voice darker than Thrust had heard it in a long time, and we may well just come to the conclusion that you need to be removed from the gene pool, as does everyone responsible for putting you into it, and anyone you may have already come to add to it. They may just be unilaterally decide that the cult are responsible for making you, the laws that didn't restrain you, and the people that you represent are not worth keeping around. And then, we'll put on a huge amount of effort into correcting that issue. We'll wipe out two or three generations just to make sure someone as offensive as you doesn't crop up again. His eyes narrowed hard. And Thrust finally understood that the you in those comments may not have been entirely hypothetical. You understand. Thrust didn't used to understand the various reasons humans sweat. Biologically, it should have only been a countermeasure to extreme temperatures. 
and yet apparently happened as a fear response. However, he now knew that if he had paws on any of his polished surfaces, they'd produce a full throttle. I, um... I take it you want your candy bar back. You know damn well how hard it is to get peanuts, Archer. Give me back my goddamn payday! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1257 Where Monsters Sleep Written by Pfizer Mop Nolena was running like she had never done before. Running for her very life from the assailant unseen. What she had witnessed were the mangled corpses of her colleagues, men and women that she had learned to know and like for months during the voyage to the sinkhole. It was a marvelous location, some sort of unexplainable gravity world in an otherwise relatively empty region. Relative, for space, that is. It was a graveyard, so to speak, for its gravitational pull had drawn in all kinds of debris. What made it special was the fact for how isolated it was and for how long it had existed. This meant one thing. If there was a stranded craft in this vicinity, it would sooner or later, on a galactic scale, end up here. Then, there were quite a few vessels here. Most were damaged in some sort, made due to its some hostile action of olden days, some unexpected danger which had compelled its crew to abandon a ship a few millennia ago, or just by arriving here and crashing into other craft, turning it into a giant artificial mothball. It was a priceless discovery for any xeno-archaeologist, brave enough to cut their way through these structures, a mess of misaligned corridors and compressed metal. This did not help her, though. Her friends were dead, mauled, butchered, and burned by an acid by some unknown creature, or even more than one. At first, she had not noticed that they were getting picked off. There was no constant radio contact, no need for such protocol, given the sites that they were excavating had been deemed safe by previous teams and authorities. Just like that, she had realized that it had many people simply stopped responding. She was going for them, taking a look if they had found something, but all she found were the corpses, brutalized beyond recognition. As she ran, she heard their claws, the thumping sound, and the echoing steps, always at the same distance, as if they knew that she was the last, as if they were hunting her for sport and amusement, after all the others had perished. By now, it was merely instinct that made her go, she crawled through the tight passages, foregoing any caution. Who cares for a hole in the suit when the alternative would be that? Maybe dying that way was even more merciful. She might have ventured into previously undiscovered areas. Who cares if death was behind you? Oddly enough, she made progress without having to cut any bulkheads. Maybe fate was on her side, after all. If only for those cruel seconds until her pursuer would end its game and catch up. It was then that she had entered an area of unknown design, utilitarian by nature, angular, and composed of exposed metal structures. If it had been any other moment, she would have recognized how the lights were still on, how the power seemed to surge with a humming through the ship, 
which had to be several millennia old just to be buried so deep in the sinkhole. It might have been a discovery of a lifetime. Well, it was. But all that was not important anymore. She just ran. Maybe it was the subconscious that made her follow the barely visible red line that was painted on the floor. Maybe she was saw something in which it reminded her of the dangers she was in. Whatever it was, it led her into a dead end. She stumbled into a room, just dimly lit, a collection of crushed tube-like structures on its opposing wall, remnants of a civilization long lost. There was no way out. She cried out in frustration, not fear. She had allowed herself to be consumed by a spark of hope, hope that was crushed just now. She knew that she would never get out of here again. Too far had she been running into the strange location. She'd found a tomb. Her hunters must have heard her, must have noticed how she became slower. As she stumbled towards the single tube that was left and emanated a strange glow. As she came closer, she felt an icy cold. The system was leaking. It was failing. Somehow she knew what was in front of her. A cryopod. The technology was well known, and if anything, somewhat universal amongst the plethora of these ships. Many of which were not FTL capable and tried to offer their crew some sort of survival option. This was an incredible find. Functioning pods were rare. Extremely rare, given how old the technology had to be, for them to be up here. For a moment, all thoughts of her peril were gone, surprised by her very identity of being a researcher at heart, mourning the fact there would not be her to discover the unknown. She tried to wash over the translucent front shield of the pond, but there was nothing to be seen. So close, yet so far. Not even in death she could face the unknown. A single thought crossed her mind. What if she was to release whatever has inside the pod? Could it help her? Would it save her? But just as quick as the thought came, she discarded it. How cruel would it be to reawaken a being so old just to be mauled? Would they be affected by cryosickness? Was it even her right to risk its life? to risk this discovery of her peers. Their life and so much knowledge would be lost, just because she was afraid. This could not be. Slowly, she went down on the floor, sitting in dust which possibly had not been disturbed for as long as her people had mastered their FTL drives. Maybe it even predated the first attempts of scripture. As she sat there, she calmed down. She had accepted her fate, and while she knew that she could not fight it off, at least she could face it. Look it in the eyes, if it even had some, at least some solace. Then they came. Creatures of nightmares, hissing and moving in such an unnaturally graceful manner that it made her spine go cold. They reflected the light that could be seen on their glossy carapaces, and at least five of them crawled through the opening, spreading out into a circle around her. Clearly, they possessed some sort of cruel sentience. Then, too many things happened simultaneously. The lighting turned red, unseen speakers howled in an insane siren, and an unnatural voice began to speak in words unknown. 
Code red, hostile boarding action detected. It was an ever-repeating loop, but before its third cycle, the very same voice became booming behind her in just different, adding its unintelligible chorus to the cacophony. Xeno threat detected, emergency protocols activated, combat reanimation initiated. Stand back, five, four, three, two, one. But that series of small detonations made her ears ring. Just next to her, the very same shielding which had covered her pod was violently pushed outwards, releasing the thick mist of extreme cold that enveloped her. Battles novel, combat readiness approved, engage. The short pause. Nothing happened. The creature was suddenly holding back, not eyeing her anymore, but the thing which was so suddenly activated just next to her. Then lightning and thunder alike erupted with blinding and deafening intensity. A rapid succession of bright-colored light streams out of the pod, each one followed by a massive booming echo. She was too slow to comprehend, as she just then saw two of the creatures already being torn apart by such a force that only the dark gore remained where they had stood. The other three scattered, for another one being caught one in the projectiles. It was launched against the wall, its body arguing with itself if it should instantly implode or just resist for long enough for the kinetic energy to smash it against the solid alloy wall. Then the thing stepped outside, its life pod, metal scratching on metal as its limbs landed next to her. With nothing but awe, she witnessed the birth of a demigod. It was tall and clad in armor so meticulously crafted that nothing but polished black surface could be seen. One of the beings had climbed up the ceiling and now launched an incredibly fast diving attack, so fast that the only in the aftermath could she understand what she had seen. It was just a single, fluid motion. As the thing drew an elongated knife, utilized the force of the approaching assailant to impale it, and turn around so that it could utilize its momentum to discard it, like it was nothing. She noticed that it was thrown on its other side, not at her. The last creature was stormed ahead, spitting greenish acid as it made its desperate charge. It was to no avail. A short staccato of a mighty rifle, and there was nothing left remaining of its original shape. The warrior waited, maybe looking out for a hidden enemy that still was to be spotted. Then it looked at her. Never before had she felt such crushing stare. Never before had she been feeling so small. She had traded five monsters for an even worse one. Yet she did not die, for she was not thrown against the wall like a hunter, crushed. She was not evaporated by its armaments. Instead, it just looked at her. Who are you? She could not understand and just raised her arms, showing that she was of no threat, that she wanted to live, that she couldn't be ignored and would never speak of it, if it did not want her to do so. But you could not say that. With a mechanical sound, the rifle seemed to snap onto the breastplate of the being. What happened next was surreal. It mimicked her gesture. It raised its empty hands, just not as extreme and expressively as she did. Was it signaling the same intention or just repeating some visual stimulus? Maybe even mocking her. Then it lowered its left limb, only for its white one to remain raised, swinging from left to right like a pendulum. Hi. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1258. Non-player character. Written by Drech Graith. 
It was an unusual sight, seated together at one large table, where a dwarf, an elf, a lizard folk, a halfling, and some sort of planar creature. Maybe a kid, or one of those outsiders that came from a magic world. Whatever it was, the red hair occasionally seemed to burst into flames, before settling down and smoldering quietly for a while. The strange combination of creatures seated together was strange, but the stranger part was by far the fact that they were animatedly talking and arguing together. And yet, nothing was going wrong. Yes, the dwarf was fulfilling his worst stereotypes. He was drunk and using heavy stone hammer to slam the table when he wanted to make his point, leaving heavy, splintered dents in the polished wooden surface. And sure, the fire person made the whole room smell like some supernatural combination of burning air and brimstone. But it wasn't any real fighting. It was all kind of odd. The bartender, a squat, gnomish woman named Mahinda, had seen the group's arrival as a sign that this would be another week of repairs and demands for compensation from the local adventurers' guild. But instead, she had handed out some of the rarest drinks, charged exorbitant prices, and aside from a profoundly dented tabletop, she hadn't run into any trouble. Heck, they tipped her in gold, despite the drinks themselves costing copper, or... At most, a single silver. She continued cleaning the stone cup that she knew the dwarf would suit need for his next round of harbor ale, and did her best to listen in. The only other patrons in the bar were two regulars, two other gnomes seated far down the bar and away from the new visitors, and they were nursing their meat with a slow care of men too proud to admit that they were too poor to afford more than one or two drinks, even on payday. Simply put, they could be ignored. These strangers, they drew her attention. A few lines of conversation drifted over to her as she ran a cloth over the bar's aged oak surface. Mahinda kept sliding closer and closer, pretending to be cleaning the bar itself, despite the fact that the cloth in her hand was far dirtier than the bar itself. But she couldn't help herself. When she had someone mentioned another forsaken diversion from the dwarf, and, like little hatchlings, rather lizard folk, she realized she needed to be more direct if she was going to understand enough context to satisfy her curiosity. Though, something about diversions and hatchlings weren't exactly enough clues to make her understand. So she walked around the back of the bar, over to the table, and made the rounds of offerings more drinks. She'd been smart enough to carry the dwarf's harbor ale with her, knowing that he didn't need any prompting for another round. But she wasn't surprised when the rest of the table said that they were fine with what they had. The elf went so far as to admit, We're good, thanks. Just waiting. Waiting? Waiting for what? As a bartender, though, Mahinda was afforded some allowances. No matter your race, you knew that you could always talk to a bartender. Even the uptight, overly polite owls were communicative enough once they came a few rounds in them. She then blurted out, Can I just ask something, Ev? What is this? Mahinda gestured at the table, carefully not pointing her hand at just one person, but making it clear that she wasn't accustomed to many visitors outside of her regulars at the bar. And definitely not such a diverse group. The dwarf started the answer, Well, let me tell you... Uh, oh, yeah, let me... We're, we're telling Anne about the... um." 
Oh, uh, the sort of kind of that, um, the thing. He seemed to lose track of what he meant to say every second or two, and he looked at the drink in his hand with confusion before deciding to continue drinking it, confusing or not. Luckily, the stinky firekin spoke up. His voice was rough and sharp, and irrationally, his every breath seemed to pipe the tiniest plume of smoke into the air. Mahinda couldn't help but wonder just what could possibly be burning inside of him without eventually using up the fuel, and therefore no longer smoking, but decided it was a mystery that she wasn't going to get an answer for, and turned her attention to listen to his apologetic explanation. But uh, my uh, companion here is trying to say, he started and then waved the dwarf into silence as he tried to explain that he was really ready to tell her. He was just finding the right words. Is that uh, we're here for one of the guilds, uh, the questing guilds, he added, when she seemed momentarily nervous. Quest guilds were one thing, full of wannabe adventurers out for treasure. But the mercenary guilds, assassins guilds, these guilds, or majors guilds, were far more worrisome to have visiting her establishment. Explains uh, your uh, diversity, he stated, nodding. Quest guilds tended to be filled with the strangest folk that you could imagine, nearly all of whom had some sort of terrible tragic backstory, or family secret, or ancient weapon tool armor item that they prized above all else. It was, well, it was illogical that such a people could be found in such numbers, and even stranger that they'd all end up in the quest guild. But that's how the world worked. And with a stutch of strangely diverse and often almost irrationally heroic backstories, such phrases did tend to attract a rather unusual characters. The elf broke in to explain now, and Mahinda noted just now how annoyingly stereotypical he was. Her, well, probably her, elves did tend to run towards the androgyny, and Mahinda wasn't about to ask for certain sharp, angular features stretched tight as the gaunt mouth spoke in condescending, lilting tone. We are sent to look for something magical. You know, magical? He, she, floated her fingers through the air, leaving a slight dance of sparks in what was probably intended to be impressive show of magic, before continuing. Well, we were looking for a lost chalice. You know, a sort of goblet or cup. Again, to make a point, she raised her own cup up full of expensive vineberry wine, if Mahindra couldn't possibly understand without a visual aid. And when we find it, we realized we didn't actually know what to do with it. It was supposed to be cursed or dangerous, but though I possess exceptional knowledge, centuries, really, um, of I came studying, she finally let her voice drift off, aware that she had no good way to make. And I didn't know how to study it with my magic, sound especially impressive to a gnome woman. Luckily, the halfling picked up the thread of the story. Simply put, milady, we realized that we needed to find someone to help us on our great and noble quest, and realizing the natural talents of your own people, your own gifts with magic items, and the use and study of such things, we made our way here, to Hearthfellon. And, a lucky thing we did, we'd never even have had a chance to sample your lovely specialties, and enjoy the hospitality you so kindly offered us. It was a simpering attempt to get her on his side, but Mahinda didn't mind. Stereotypical or not, this halfling knew his business. Most halflings were quick-tongued, quick-fingered, and quick-witted, as was fitting for the closest species relatives of the nerves. 
and Mahinda found herself nodding and smiling appreciatively at his compliments. She murmured something about too kind and not a problem before she asked a question that had jumped into her head when she heard the story. Then, do you have it on you? Can I see the chalice? She didn't need to be told the answer, looking at the faces, but she was told nonetheless. Oh, alas, dear. Our final companion has taken it and is off to bargain for its magical divination, to seek your priest or priestesses to cast their spells to prove to us its safety, and we are well... Well, we're waiting for his return. Mahinda couldn't help but ask. Oh, and is he one of your folk, little cousin? She realized little cousin might have been overdoing it. But in the roguish little halfling just shot her a charming look and answered, Oh no, my lady. He's a human, actually. Quite the, uh, quite the character, really. You'll meet him soon, if he holds his promised schedule. Mahinda noticed the elf rolling his eyes, the skull appearing on the lizard folk's scaled face, and the almost proud, proprietary look of drunken dwarf displayed when their final companion was mentioned. Maybe he was the one that had left them looking so discontent when they'd walked in. And using the strange, magical talent humans seemed to have in such a ludicrous amounts, the human showed up at just the right time to burst in, calling out, Was someone mentioning me? He strutted for just puffed out an altogether overly charming smile at his face, displaying rows of glaringly white teeth. The dwarf jumped off his chair, stumbled and caught himself with his hammer, and ran over towards the human. Aye, lad, we were, we were. And uh, what did the fancy cup then, hmm? He hiccuped slightly, but he kept his slightly swaying form fixed on the human, who pulled the leather pouch of his belt and tossed it towards the table where it spilled a wealth of... Was that platinum coins? In such quantities. Mahinda suddenly turned back to the human, whose whole demeanor changed from curious matron of this establishment to obsequious servant of the royal lordship, if it pleased ye. Hello, my fine sir. I'm just conversing with your companions. Lovely companions, lovely people. I mean, I was just saying, well, uh, if you are all staying tonight, you're welcome to use the lodgings that we have upstairs. This is an inn, after all. Not a measly ale-hole, and, well, I'm certain that we can arrange accommodations, so long as you all tell me what you need. She momentarily worried about the firekin, burning her building down if he set his head on a straw-stuffed mattress. But with the wealth or the platinum, like it was visible on the table, she was more than willing to risk it. What followed was a brief burst of conversation amongst the adventurers, followed by the human strutting around, looking supremely important for a while. And finally the majority of the team heading upstairs for their bedrooms and some rest. After two hours had passed, the only one left downstairs with Mahindra was the halfling, since you couldn't really count the dwarf as with them. He was snoring drunkenly on the couch Mahindra had dragged near the hearth to keep the sodden man comfy when he woke. She was talking quieter, and the halfling, who she now knew was Skip, was practically whispering back at her. I'm serious, he told her. The lizard actually ate the thing's bloody hand, like his lips and everything. I didn't even know lizard folk could become barbarians, uh, could rage like that. Uh, it was disgusting. I mean, sure, it's probably saved us from the trolls, but can you imagine how that would have tasted? He shivered a little, shaking his head. Mahinda redirected the conversation to the human again, trying to figure out something that she was missing. So, um, you say that the last fellow, what did you call him? Bard offered the halfling, a druidor if you want to get technical. Well, that part then, 
Why do you keep him around for? I mean, uh, the elf can cast, the dwarf can take a beating, the lizard sounds like he can barely be stopped by less than a dozen enemies at once, the firekin, or flamed keeper, as you said, whatever, he uses some kind of magic of his own. And fights too, I guess. Even you, you help the team by finding traps, opening locks, you all have a purpose. So what's that of the human for, then? Skip sighed into his drink. His over-the-top friendliness was still simmering beneath the surface. But without the audience of his companions around, he was more or less extreme than talking to Mahindra. Much less gallant and comical. Well, have you ever traveled with a human lady? I mean, uh, not like across town, but across the country. Mahindra hadn't, and readily admitted as much. It's, um, I can barely explain it. You know how he just showed up today? She came right in when we were talking about him. Mahindra nodded again. She knew humans were teased about their strange timing, their talent for appearing to fit whatever role they were placed in, but she wasn't sure how they would apply to traveling with one. Skip explained, though. It's like today, but all the time, you travel with a human, and you wander across a random old man in his cart. You fix it for him, because he's a fucking human guilt you into it, and suddenly you find that the old man's cart is full of magic items that he was traveling to the city to sell to save his farm. And sure, you end up having to guard the guy, but he gives you more magic items than you've seen in your life doing so. And then the human says, We need to help save his farm. He's been nice to us. And you want to argue, but he did just give you a cloak of hidden shadows. So you say, just one more damned diversion. And we'll get back to the quest. But when you save the old man's farm, you find out the tax collector was cheating him. And now you're off to the another quest to stop the cruel warlord from extorting his people. He breathed heavily, sounding flustered, and drained most of his cup in a long, gulping pause. It's... it's godforsaken insanity. We were sent to get this cup, told that it was cursed and we could sell it to use the money for our expenses. But that was eight fecking months ago, and now we're all decked out in more magic equipment than my whole village had, collectively. He shook his head and met her eyes. I... it's... I don't understand. I keep thinking I'm gonna leave, go off and retire, but there's one more final quest to do, one final adventure. And instead of dying in it, I'm retiring. The stupid bard sings our asses through it and walks us out like some storybook hero. Mahindra saw the strange combination of awe, confusion, excitement, appreciation, and disbelief in his face, and reached a gentle hand out to him, kindly patting her hand on his arm. It sounds exhausting, but uh, good, I guess. So you're saying that they may be uh, lucky, or just that they attract excitement? She wasn't sure how to interpret all he was saying as it was sounded like some sort that she thought of an adventure in a quest guild would want to do. But the halfling looked exhausted and ragged as he spoke about it, more than he looked all night. No, 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 I'm saying... Uh, I'm saying uh, that when you travel with a human and a bard human to boot, you aren't off to solve a problem. You're off to become some kind of strange world-changing hero, and the idiot can't fight with a damn. But he keeps getting you out of trouble. You know, I once saw him pull a lute out and sing a dragon to sleep. I mean, sure, there was a young dragon, but it sang at a lullaby in the middle of battle. And it worked. He shook his head, obviously convinced that he wasn't explaining why the fantastical story might otherwise have elicited praise and awe was, for some reason, just confusing. I guess, uh, 
I guess that what I'm saying is, when you're around a human adventurers, you realize that maybe, maybe they're heroes of the stories. And the story, the world, it does it. And it makes it work for you if you're on his side. Or against you if you aren't. Uh, and um, it doesn't seem fair. His voice stopped tone and sounded a little disappointed. It's like being a, a side character and a story you thought that you were the hero of. Mahindra nodded. As a third order of the great high gnome temple priestess, she'd expected to be a priestess herself, or at least some kind of mage. But she'd ended up being forced to take up running an inn just to make ends meet when she found that she had no skill with magic, arcane, divine, or otherwise. Watching her older brother become a world-famous healer felt like finding that you were your parents' second favorite. Except worse, because it was like the whole world saw you as less important. She thought for a moment and then realized something. You know, she said to Skip with a smile slowly rising on her face. I guess the important thing to focus on is that you get to be a part of the story, right? You get to save the world, change history, make a difference. She poked at the pouch of money on his waist and heard the light clink of metal as the heavy platinum coin moved inside. And he made you a pretty penny while doing so. I have no idea how he managed to convince the temple to buy a cursed item like that. And for so much. Skip nodded, and his face gained a shade more of its color as he thought about the fact. Yeah, he, um, the guy might be a weirdo, but, um, he has a way with words, uh, I will admit it. Well, good, Mahinda said, her voice brightening. And if you're feeling better, then I guess I can finally ask you something. She looked nervously into his eyes, and Skip suddenly wondered if he was about to bed this woman, if she was going to drop all the flirting and beat our rank with him. Instead, she asked... Has your party heard of the rumor, the one about the werewolves outside of town? Skip's face dropped immediately, looking dejected, sad, and horrified. Ignoring this, Mahinda went on. You're here on the perfect day, after all. Tomorrow's a full moon, and I know exactly who you need to talk to. My mother is the head of the temple here, and I'm certain that they would reward you handsomely for helping us out. Her voice had changed, and she sounded almost cheerful as she asked Skip, for his help in this new, even more dangerous quest. Skip jumped off his chair, horrified, and back towards the hallway leading to the bedrooms above. He heard a creak on the floorboards behind him, and turned, knowing deep down exactly what he was going to see. Of course, said Johnny, the human troubadour, who was coming down at the exact right time to just happen to overhear it. I was just on my way down for a glass of water, and I, I hope it's okay that I heard that little of what you were talking about. He smiled, charmingly and heroically at Mahinda, who blushed and smiled back. Suddenly, overcome with the desire to offer the stranger all the help he'd need to solve this terrible danger for a village. Johnny's hand was now on Skip's shoulder, squeezing it reassuringly. Looking at Skip with that strange, determined look in his eyes, he said... We, we can't possibly leave the city unprotected. I swear, he pled with pride, his chest almost visibly swelling and his teeth gleaming perfectly white in the dark, in the rotating way that it always seemed to shine. We'll save your people. I swear it. With that overbearing, almost supernatural smile still plastered on his face, his gaze down at Skip and instructed, you go get some sleep, Skip. It sounds like we've got a long day ahead of us. Without another pause, he pushed past towards Mahinda and started to ask her about the werewolves. Why no one had mentioned them before, 
and how he could find Mahinda's mother, the priestess, who would be willing to part with the magical silver knife for every member of Skip's adventuring party. If it meant being saved by the were-creatures, Skip dejectedly walked up the stairs, turning back to see Mahinda talking much more animatedly with Johnny, who stared back with a look of absolute concentration and focus on his face. When Skip walked past the first door on the upper landing, the flame-keeker, Voigius, popped his head out of his door and met his eye. I heard him walk past a minute ago, he admitted. Then he looked worriedly at Skip and asked, Is it, um... Is it going to be dangerous? Skip smiled back dejectedly. Of course it is. If it wasn't, he wouldn't be a hero. And with that, he went down the hall and crawled into bed. Despite the late hour, he couldn't help but worry about and remember all the other little side quests that he'd been dragged into since starting out with Johnny the Great, the crazy human bard all those months ago. He comforted himself when he thought, at least lycanthropes will be easier than undead. Right? And with that hope flitting fitfully through his head, he finally, blessedly, fell asleep. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1259. Story number one. Malicious Compliance, written by Deobik. There was a well-known joke that always gets an annoyed chuckle from humans and a rueful amusement from others. How do you get a human to do something? Tell them that they can't do it. Ha ha, very funny. Oh, said the humans, with their defiance and legendary stubbornness. Practically, everyone knows one of those stories. You say, don't eat the Oasis ration bar, it's made of pure capsaicin. And what does the human do? Eat three of them. Well, my story isn't one of the usual kind. Most beings fail to realize that humans are aware that outright defiance has its limits. But, as everyone knows, humans are stubborn. They find ways to get what they want. It happened several years ago, when I was still a greenling. Back then, I had the thankless job of the contractor going from company to company, fixing problems with the internet. I was hired out to a human corporation that had suffered from connectivity issues. When I arrived there, the mood was positively horrid. Oh, not because of me. Humans are not very xenophobic, and my kind have worked closely with them for centuries, being each other's first contacts. It's the reason that I was hired out in the first place. The Tsenen and the humans have a treaty allowing the free access of workers. Sorry, I'm getting off topic again. I'm not very good at storytelling. There's a reason I work with computers. Back to my time with the human corporation. I quickly became good friends with a human named Timber. Being a fellow grunt, we had often spent our lunch breaks together. It was through him that I learned about the... What was the term? Ah, yes. The hostile takeover. The boss humans didn't want their company to be bought out, but they had no choice due to financial finagles that I still know nothing about. It fucking sucks, said Tim using a phrase of general disgruntlement. He supped at his cup of disgusting coffee, looking unhappier as he drank it. I can't believe that we were bought out by that stupid gang of yuckers. Quick face, fat, mutant fish. All right, humans are xenophobic sometimes, especially when angry. I nodded and bared my teeth in a human smile. That was generally enough encouragement to keep him going. 
They want us to reconstruct your everything. He took another sip of his coffee and grimaced. Those stupid blowfish plan to cripple us so they can buy our tech and shut us down. And did you see the ugly abomination they sent us as our new boss? Dickface is trying to make our life miserable. How dare it tell us to be more rule-abiding? Doesn't even know any of the rules. Its name is Dreckfus. I corrected. Yeah, Dickface, that's what I said. He laughed to himself, showing his teeth in a way that seemed more threatening than friendly. I've talked to some of the other guys, and uh, we've come up with a plan. You just wait and see. It's gonna be amazing. You shouldn't do anything rash, I fidgeted, tentacles curling. Dragfest can make your job a lot worse. Don't worry, we're gonna do exactly what he wants. Now, I can think back and laugh about it. At that moment, though... I didn't find his words to be very comforting. When I walked into work the next day, something seemed different. Everyone was quiet, too quiet. Tim was tapping away at his computer, and I approached him with a quizzical twitch of my tentacles. What does, um, hap? He hissed in a way that meant silence, gesturing for me to sit down. Play along and don't just say anything. Act like you're working. Trust me, it'll be good. Though I was still puzzled, I followed his directions. Barely a second had passed before breakfast slithered in. Human Tim, it moaned. Have you the blueprints? I have asked for them several days, and your performance is severely lacking. Tom swiveled in his chair. His expression was curiously still and bland. Sorry, but I can't hand the blueprints to anyone unless they fill out a DF-98-C and send a copy to HR. What? Breakfast, mouth opened and closed. I was not required to fill out any forms before. Yes, but since you asked us to follow the regulations, Tim shrugged. Its bulbous eyes blinked. Mel, give me the form so that I can fill it out. Sorry, I'm not authorized to. Tim turned away and continued typing. Then who is... Lin Chen. Breakfast turned to this light as a shade violet. Human Lin Chen, give me form DF-98-C. Lin looked up from her computer. Form DF-98-C cannot be accessed without a signed copy of DF-54, DF-55, and DF-56. Furthermore, I need confirmation of identity. It blinked again. I have my company-issued ID right here, exclaimed Dreyfus, holding up a thin plastic square. Lynn took it gingerly, carefully avoiding the pink slime on the back. Unfortunately, this expired yesterday. You'll have to get another copy. His scales were turning darker and darker. And where do I get another ID? You can't get it without proof of ID. How do I get proof of ID in order to get ID? I need the ID so that I can prove my identity, it screeched. That's what form CB343-D is for. I marveled at Lin's ability to talk without emotion. In my opinion, that was what flustered breakfast more. I couldn't be sure if she was mocking him or not. Dreckfus breathed in deeply, seven nostrils flaring. Dad, give me Palm CB343-C. I'm not authorized to. And who is? You are. And then I authorize myself to give me the form. His eyeballs were spinning wildly in their sockets. You can't do that without filling out Form K83-2. You're being deliberately obstructive. His scales weren't dark and they were almost black. No, said Tim not even looking at breakfast. We're being rule-abiding. That was the final straw. With a wordless scream, breakfast slid out. 
After the door shut, everyone in the room began celebrating. Well, um, just you wait, guys. Dermot slapped his hand against my tentacle. This is just the beginning. A few months later, Yedidik returned to the company to its former management, citing some bogus reading about finances. However, I knew the truth. Everyone had followed the rules, but they had done it in a way that made the Yiddick miserable. While it is true that the humans are amazing at disobeying the rules, they are even better at following them. So if you want a human to do something, be careful about how you ask them, because you might just get what you asked for. End of story. Story number two. Uncanny, written by Echoing Cascade. Ambassador Peterson was having a meal with a crossed delegate. To say that it was awkward would be an understatement. The crossed were famous as the first contact specialists. They led the meeting with new species thanks to their ability to mimic the races they interacted with. The problem was that while they came very well recommended by other alien species, they unnerved the humans. The only way to describe them was Uncanny Valley. They looked human from afar, but once you got them in the same room, everything was a little off. The supper was rather complicated by the fact that Ambassador Peterson's young daughter was present, and she was having a hard time not staring, and barely touched the food. Peterson, what's wrong with you, Beth? He knew exactly what was wrong, but he had to make a show of assuaging her fears. Beth, he is scary. Peterson gave delegate Solerson a wry smile who blinked off tempo and nodded far too slowly. Peterson, the aversion you feel is novel. It's like how we react to some of the fauna here on the earth. Beth nodded and poked at her food. Like spider, snakes, oh, junk. Peterson, yeah, sure. Um, We have certain reactions, though, to them, because some of them were poisonous. It is believed it's a form of evolved or inherited apprehension from our ancestors. Beth pondered this answer for a moment. Beth. Okay, that makes sense. But, Dad... She looked at her father in the eyes and then pointed at the crossed delegate. Beth. Why did we evolve to fear the crossed? Peterson was about to rebuke his daughter and apologize to the delegate. When a thought occurred to him, his mouth went dry, a cold sweat ran down his spine, and he gave a silent alarm to his security detail to stand ready. Peterson. Me, Mr. Solerison... You said your species had visited Earth millions of years ago, correct? Solerison nodded extremely quickly. Solerison. Yeah, yes. Peterson. I've also noted that you've only eaten the meat part of your meal, so I have to ask, why did you visit Earth? None of the files you've made available explain the reason for your visit. Solerison stopped eating, blinked in rapid succession and seemed to hyperventilate, then became as still as a statue. Then his face split vertically. What came from his human-like husk couldn't be described even after looking at the recordings, but it turned the ambassador's hair white and gilled one of his bodyguards before the others could take it down. The only mercy was the good ambassador managed to shield his daughter's eyes from the sight. Crosts became a species non grata in every settlement, and the galaxy-wide investigation took place. This new information explained two mysteries— why so many missing reports seem to follow everywhere the crust visited, and why humans are so adept at recognizing something that looks human, but isn't. End of story. 
Tales from Outer Space 1260. The Terran Incident, written by Mr. Nailbrain75. Extract from Terrans, Ignoble Savages, or Incredible Pioneers. Written by Professor Anver Stratman. University of Versia Publishing, 3210, 2nd Edition. Introduction. For many centuries, our galaxy had enjoyed a long-standing peace. Despite the odd small-scale planetary insurrection or political disturbance, order and serenity was kept and maintained by the will of the Kachaxian supremacy. From humble beginnings as a race of traders, the Kachaks had grown to prominence during the events of the Great Maiari Civil War, also known by some historians as the War of the Maiari Princes which occurred in the year 1765 of the Kajakian calendar. Footnote. For clarity's sake, I'll be referring to all dates using the Kajakian calendar, as this is one of the few chronologies to be adopted by multiple cultures throughout the galaxy. Following the death of the Maori Sultan Dakesh Twentieth, his three legitimate sons all gathered their forces to fight for the right to rule the planet. Whilst wars for succession were rare, they were not unheard of, and, as a result, the Kajaxian Maiari Company, KMC, deployed its own private army to secure and defend its assets on the surface of the Maiari homeworld. It was during this time that the princes, after having seen KMC forces fight off larger raiding forces of bandits that had come together to take advantage of the conflict to plunder and loot the surrounding settlements, began to pay off the Kajaks as mercenaries. Throughout the conflict, the KMC would hire out its security forces as mercenaries to the highest bidder, all the while hiding behind a thin mask of neutrality, which allowed them to keep trading with all parties. After all, each of the three claimants was aware that to directly attack the KMC was not only to permanently lose a highly valued service, but to also risk bringing the Kachaxian government into the war. By the end of the Civil War, the KMC had all but established itself as one of the dominant powers on Maiari. Even had we wished to do so, the newly crowned Sultan the XXI was not in a position to deny aid from the Kachaks, as his own resources and military forces had been decimated as a result of the conflict. Attempting to remove the KMC from power would not only nearly be impossible, but would likely deny him vital supplies offered up by the Kachaks. And so, the KMC were here to stay on Maiari. Over the next 50 standard years, the KMC influence began to grow. Despite the wishes of the Sultan, KMC military forces only continued to grow on Maiari, aiding in putting down rebellious factions and providing greater security. Meanwhile, the aliens all became to dominate the Maiari markets. By the year 1812, the Kachaks controlled Maiari in all but name. In 1815, the Sultan Tukri II would sign the Treaty of Bry, making the Maiari a vassal planet to the Kachaks. Some historians and contemporary politicians pointed how convenient the death of Sultan Dukesh XXII and all of his children as a result of a warp drive explosion was to the Kachaks, as Kachaks XXII had been vehemently opposed to meddling of the offworlders in Maiari affairs, whilst his brother, Tukri, had... Uh, who had been a long-standing advocate for the Kajaks, had conspicuously taken ill on that day of the voyage and subsequently been the only member of the royal family to survive. The Kajaks have denied any and all involvement in the incident, 
and with no evidence to the contrary. As tends to happen in warp drives explode, for further reading, I highly recommend the Graktar Mork's book, Interstellar Disasters That Shook the Galaxy. I'm afraid we must agree with the investigation, which states the destruction of the Royal Cruiser as nothing more than a tragic accident. After all, even today, the Maiari are not exactly known for their shipbuilding. That's covered throughout Mork's book, in which they have four entire chapters dedicated to the various mishaps. Expansion of the Kachaks Following the success in Mayari, the Kachaks began to expand into other systems. In their early years, they followed similar models to Mayari, wherein which they would make themselves all but indispensable to the various governments. Worlds allied, and the Kachaks soon became rich and powerful. It was through the trade in uranium ore and slaves with the Kachaks that the reptilian Kaudata became the major galactic power that they are today. Other worlds that tried to sanction the Kachaks for their actions both militarily and otherwise found themselves blockaded by the Kachaksian navy until they acquiesced to the demands of the aliens, often to the great expense of the blockaded world. The Sindran, even now, 348 standard years after the end of the blockade of their homeworld, have yet to recover. As their power grew, the Kachaks began to expand ever outwards, and began to outright invade and conquer worlds that could not resist them. As recorded in many historical texts, their first major campaign of colonization against the insectoid Yin was a major success after storming the Nikor Hive which resorted in the capture of the Yin Queen. This second campaign against the amphibian Odin was famously achieved in the span of four standard months in the year 2431, leading to total domination and enslavement of the Odin. The third campaign all but annihilated the raiding fleets of the Drexit that had terrorized the southern edge of the galaxy for many, many years. And so it went on. The infamous blue-coat regiments of the Kachaks were respected and feared, Far and wide. Of course, they were met with resistance as many alien races sought to prevent complete Chaxian dominance. This famously led to the formation of the alliance of Boga, Slack, and Druk to oppose the Kachaxian supremacy in the year 2702. The supremacy war would rage for the next two and a half centuries and would see fighting on eight separate worlds. Despite the valiant efforts of the alliance, the Kachak's military was far superior, having perfected the art of firing their muskets up on top of astonishing four shots a minute, and having perfected the art of forming their ranks so as to perfectly meet the enemy's attack, no matter the situation. Only the famed Druk cavalry was superior to the Kachak's counterparts, and this advantage was lost to the Alliance when the Druk defected to the Chaxian supremacy. In 2927, in exchange for full rights in the supremacy as citizens, and to be pardoned from paying the reparations for the war. An agreement that the Kachaks, to their credit, honored completely. When the final Slack outpost fell in 2951, and so often depicted in various media, such as the brilliant film Alliance and the not so brilliant Death of a Dream, the Kachaksian supremacy's dominance was all but secured. It seemed that through trade, guile, and unstoppable military power, the Kachaks had gone from being a simple merchant world to the leader of the greatest empire the galaxy had ever known. The 293rd Expeditionary Fleet and the Discovery of Terrans 
For the next 71 standard years, the Kajaxian supremacy controlled the galaxy. All known life in 40% of the galaxy woke up, lived, and died under Kajaxian rule. Yet, still did the Kajaks seek to expand their influence, and so sent out multiple expeditions into the unknown regions of space. At the beginning of the year 3012, the 293rd Expeditionary Fleet stumbled upon a Category 9 world. Although, on the edge of what many races considered to be habitable, this world was possessed not only life, but sentient life. Initial monitoring of the planet's crude communication systems determined that this was likely only a few colonies of a species that was only beginning to reach out to the stars. What would drive any sane species to try and settle on a Category 9 world, only one class beneath the dreaded Category 10 death world, with such primitive instruments was beyond comprehension. It was not understood at the time that the colonists hailed from one of these Category 10 death worlds, and to them the planet named Janus, reportedly after one of the ancient gods, was a verdant paradise that was in fact being used to farm various foodstuffs. Yes, these creatures were farming and consuming the various poisonous fauna and flora of the Category 9 world. For their homeworld, Terra. Having spent one week out of range of the primitive scanners of Terrans, Fleet Admiral Lord Blom ordered the world to be seized in the name of the Kachaxian supremacy. In a lightning strike, the world of Janus was seized, having been deemed primitives. The Terrans were rounded up and put into slavery. Out of the five space-bearing vessels of the colony, three were destroyed in the initial strike, while in orbit, and the fourth was destroyed attempting to escape the world. Only one ship, the UNSS Explorer, would escape the campaign, and only because Lord Blom's sense of martial honor felt that there would be no glory in hunting a fleet vessel. Had the 293rd Expeditionary Fleet spent more time analyzing the culture of the Terrans during their initial reconnaissance, they might not have allowed the Explorer to crawl back to the Terran space. But as the Admiral's lust for glory of a quick campaign, he only allowed three standard days for recon before invasion. The captured Terran slaves were brought back to Kachaxian space to be sold, where they gathered quite a lot of interest. Being a newly discovered species was not the only cause of this. The Terrans were bipedal, ape-like creatures, their soft skin buried in various shades of whites, beiges, browns, and black. Although short compared to most other species, standing at merely 5.5 kicks on average, they weighed as much as a fully grown Kachak's male with the strength to match. This led scholars to speculate that Terrans had evolved on a high-gravity world. This would later be confirmed. This made the Terrans ideal for manual labor. Furthermore, the Terrans were mammalian in origin, and their hair was soft and almost luxurious to the touch, which, if gathered in large enough quantities, might make for excellent fabric. It was also guessed that Terran milk might also be better alternative to that of the Bakkek beast, which is all but inedible to up to 142 different species. These were all factors that made investors and government officials to fund more expeditions into Terran space to conquer their race and put them into slave farms as had been done before to other races such as the Slack. In late 3014, Lord Admiral Blom was preparing his armada and his invasion forces on Janus when a Terran fleet of 16 ships dropped out of warp. Rage of the Terrans Initially, the arrival of the Terrans was surprising, but not concerning to Lord Admiral Blom. 
He speculated that the Terrans had sent all their ships to retake their colony, which would make the conquest of Terran space all the easier. Furthermore, were he to capture Terran ships, his one failure during the initial campaign, he would be able to learn the location of the other Terran worlds. Eagerly, he sent his ships to engage and ordered his infantry to prepare to any Terran landings. Lord Admiral Blom had failed to consider two vital factors. Firstly, due to the surprise of the attack, his initial invasion hadn't encountered any Terran military resistance before. Secondly, the starships encountered on the Janus Conquest were colony ships with little in the way of defensive weaponry, not the purpose-built dreadnoughts approaching him. The Kajaxian fleet raced towards the Terrans, sleeker and faster, the Kajaxian vessels easily outpaced the lumbering behemoths of the Terrans. Like stinging bloodflies, the Kajaxian ships fired their batteries at the dreadnoughts. There was undoubtedly the more aesthetically pleasing of the two ship designs. Blom's plan was to have his ships fly past the Terrans in a straight line to provide a virtually continual broadside barrage. It was a strategy that had served the Kajaks for centuries. Then, the Terran ships fired. Although they were slow, lumbering bricks compared to the sleeker supremacy vessels, the Terran dreadnoughts also hit with the force of an angry god. The first ship to understand this was the KSS Enduring Spirit, which was torn apart in mere seconds under the hail of gunfire. Three more ships were destroyed in quick succession before Blom ordered the ships to break formation. The power of the Terran guns made it all but impossible to get within range to engage them. Unperturbed, the Terran vessels began to settle down upon the surface of Janus. As the Terrans landed, the 214th Kachaxian Blue Coat Army formed ranks and expected to receive the charge of the Terrans. The Adians might have used brute force to great success against the Kachaxian fleet, but here, it was expected the tide would turn. After all, Terrans were deemed primitive savages and were expected to run screaming towards the Blue Coat lines the moment they discharged their muskets as had been the case in so many wars against other primitives. It was here that the legendary 120-kick range of the Kachak's firearms and their famous four-shot minute would win them the battle. Drums played to the march of the troops into battle as news cameras played to the entire supremacy to show the glory of this victory. Indeed, the Terrans were, and arguably still are, savages. But it is not known to what extent. If it had, the supremacy would have likely ordered the quarantine of Terran space. You see, the Terrans have had a long warrior history. Through studying various Terran sources, I have learned that since the dawn of their civilization, the Terrans' tribal tendencies, aggression, and competitive nature meant that until coming to the Kachaks, the humans had not experienced more than two standard decades without war. So much of their technological development came about due to conflict. Early Terran spaceships were designed from the basis of Terran weaponry. See the V-2 rocket in diagrams. When most races invented the rocket, usually in the form of a firework or experimenting with chemical powders, they said, I wonder how we can use this to go faster. When the Terrans invented the rocket, their first thought was likely... I wonder how many people I can blow apart with this. As a result, Terran weaponry became ever more advanced. Terran culture is so based upon war that much of their media tells stories of war, 
Even their sports and games simulate war with sports that encourage unit cohesion to score a goal. See football in the references. Whereas they have computer simulations that replicate battle scenarios with genres dedicated to being a single soldier, FPS, and leading an army, RTS. The Kachaks may have been masters of war, but the Terrans revolutionizing it, and the Kachaks were about to learn this. Instead of coming in a mindless horde, the Terran infantry moved in small, mobile groups. This unnerved the Kachaks' officers, but still they waited for the Terrans to enter the 120-kick range of their muskets. Then, the Terrans stopped at 300 kicks and raised their weapons. Surely, they couldn't expect their weapons to be effective at that range. Then the Terrans fired their weapons, firing not one, two, three, or four, but hundreds of rounds a minute, mowing down the blue coats as the tight ranks prevented quick escape. Worse still came the Terran tanks, monstrous armored cannons that tore apart the troop cavalry that charged to meet the Terrans. Worse still, the Terrans wore dark green clothing that helped them blend into the trees and made it all but impossible to spot them at extreme range of their firearms could engage at. Understandably, the Kajak's forces panicked and began to flee. General Vukger and his staff of Kahak's nobles waited for the Terrans to approach, understanding that they would likely be captured and ransomed off as was customary for the nobility. When a squad, the name given to a small group of Terran soldiers, approached the general staff, Vukger and his men were brutally gunned down in a hail of fire that until an hour previous was thought could only be produced by a thousand soldiers firing at once. Only the cameramen of the new station had survived, unwittingly relaying all that was transpiring to a horrified galaxy. In orbit, the situation was far worse. Lord Admiral Brom's armada lay in tatters, with various captains deserted, warping their vessels back to Kachaxian space. Undoubtedly fueled by rage, Blom ordered his flagship KSS Victorious to engage the Terran ships, determined to take down at least one. The KSS Victorious drew into range. The Terran ship's UNSS Odyssey fired a salvo, detonating the Kachaxian engines and leaving Victorious adrift. Using a harpoon-like device, the Terrans anchored the two ships together and sent their squads aboard. Within the span of an hour, the ship was under Terran control. Various reports detail how Lord Admiral Blom committed suicide as was the honorable way out, and to prevent himself being captured. Others say that one of his slaves took his opportunity to, in a moment of hesitation on Blom's part, seize the Admiral's pistol and discharge it into Blom's cranium. The Battle of Janus resulted in 20,541 bluecoats, 34,702 naval personnel, and 18 battle cruisers being lost in the span of a single day. Worst still, the Terran casualties numbered less than 150 personnel, and extensive damage to two of their dreadnoughts, although this was able to be repaired. And with the capture of the KSS Victorious and its crew, the Terrans had access to all the data available on the Supremacy. All this was broadcast live to the galaxy. Yet, we still had to see the Terrans' most feared weapon. Retaliation Galaxy-wide panic and riots broke out as the carnage of Janus was shown. Many blue-coat regiments were deployed to quell the crowds. Meanwhile, the Kachaxian government sat down to discuss the situation. 
It was clear that the Terrans had been underestimated. Perhaps though the entire might of the supremacy was brought against him, the Terrans could be overwhelmed by sheer force of numbers. Never in the history of the supremacy had a force been beaten so thoroughly. It was then that the sirens blared over the world of Zixus Prime and the Terran fleet appeared in orbit. The supremacy could hardly believe its luck. Zixus Prime was one of the main military staging grounds for the Kachaks. Over 75 battlecruisers were stationed in orbit, and one million bluecoats were waiting on the surface. Meanwhile, the Terrans had a mere 20 vessels. If there was anything that would halt the Terrans, it would be here. It was then that the Terrans opened communication. A middle-aged Terran male with blue eyes that seemed to bore through the camera faced the supremacy officers. He wore what appeared to be a captured auto-translator about his ear. This is Admiral Callum Harker of the United Nations Navy. In response to the unprovoked attack of your supremacy, the Terran said this word with an audible sneer. The United Nations has decided to deliver upon you this ultimatum. Release all human captives to us and surrender yourselves to our terms. You have 24 hours to comply. The countdown appeared on the screen with unknown symbols that began to count down at regular intervals. If you do not answer or we perceive any act of aggression, we will be forced to take drastic action. The message terminated. The Kajaxians were outraged. How dare these savages try to take terms of surrender to them? Immediately, and perhaps foolishly, the Kajaxians moved to intercept the Terran fleet. The Terrans responded by simply firing six shots. The Kajaxians have dubbed these weapons the Brutos Hellfire after the vengeful god of war from ancient times. My own people, the Ferritus, named them the end of all things. The Terrans simply call them nukes. Six shots were fired out and streamed past the approaching fleet and slammed onto the surface of Zixus Prime, using information from the records of the captured crew and computers of the KSS Victorious. The Terrans had learned the positions of the most vital strategic targets in Zixus Prime's surface. Shipyards, factory cities, major forts, and staging grounds. In mere seconds, each was engulfed in nuclear fire that vaporized everything around them in atomic fire and leaving the scorched earth ruined for decades afterwards with the taint of radiation. The Terrans had weaponized nuclear energy. They weren't just savages. They were madmen. Once more, the Terran Admiral appeared on screen. That was your final warning. Do not make us do something we might regret. As the communication cut off once more, reports abounded of Terran fleets appearing above six other worlds along the border. All of them showed signs of bearing the same weapons as had just been unleashed on Zixus Prime. But this time, they were pointed at non-military targets. Citizens panicked and began to revolt. Ships began to evacuate people off-world, and in many cases, entire blue-coat regiments deserted or even mutinied against their betters. If it had not been for a limited range of the Terran ships, it is likely that they would have gone as close to Kachaks as they possibly could. The supremacy had no choice. In his fateful address to the public, Minister Elson announced that all Terran slaves to be immediately returned to Janus. In the following 3015 Treaty of Janus, the Supremacy was forced to respect the sovereignty of the Terran space and was not allowed to send ships of any kind into Terran space without an armed escort. 
The trading of Terran weapons to aliens was also strictly prohibited. This proved to be the death knell for the supremacy. Sadly, many worlds who had suffered under the control began to rise up, sensing weakness. No longer did the Kajaks appear to be an unstoppable force. They had been made to bleed, and if something could bleed, it could be killed. Whilst the Kachaxian legions had been able to put down the odd rebellion at a time, their forces suddenly found themselves under increasing pressure as more and more systems rebelled against them. By 3031, the Kachaks pulled back to their homeworld and were shattered. The once rulers of the galaxy were beaten down and enslaved. In the intervening years since, the worlds formerly under Kachak's control had been working to re-establish themselves, and we've been forming new bonds and alliances. There have been conflicts, but there have also been great triumphs and breakthroughs. Yet every single one of us looks with trepidation to the western border. For, although the Terrans currently seem content to colonize worlds most sane sentients would not even consider, we remember what happened when they decided to fight for a world. Even though they are content to train with us, we remember the weaponry they keep hidden. Even though there has been no major conflict between Terrans and any other known species since the Janus War, we all remember the time the Terrans broke the oldest and largest empire the galaxy had ever known in less than two years. We all remember the time the Terrans went to war. Then we pray that they are not given cause to do so again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1261 Story number one. Unlucky Humans, written by Ravna Crusoe. I don't get it. The Yuno insectoid spoke as it clicked its mandibles in confusion. How unlucky must a race be to have to come up with this, um, insurance? Unlucky? I may blink in slight surprise as I put my brochure down. Don't you think it's uh, logically viable? The alien shook its head. No, it is. Pay small periodic sums of money in exchange for a new ship if it's stolen or gets destroyed, resulting in you paying but a fraction of what a new ship would have cost. It used its left pincer to poke at the pamphlet. That one sort of species would be so attacked with statistical failure that would consider the idea worth making a company exclusively for it. Again, unlucky. I had to frown at the alien's words. I don't see how that applies to us. The percentage of ships owned by a human lost are equivalent to those of any other species when we take into account the categorization of the ships themselves and the routes taken. But your species created this insurance years before they became spacefarers. No? The amusement was clear in the alien's antennas as it twitched around. I'm merely curious. I mean, I am... Pausing for a moment to think. Didn't other species have accidents or catastrophes? We did, and we do, it responded with a shrug. But my black lighters tell me that perhaps not with the frequency you humans have. A pause as it seemed to think about something, reaching into a pocket at the side of its chair and pulling out a data pad. Aha, it declared in triumph after a moment. I merely raised my eyebrow, feeling curious as to what it had found. Just look at this. The alien handed the data pad over, and I realized it was a digital manual for a... A microwave oven. This is just a manual, I muttered in confusion. Yes, an appliance every human is familiar with, no? Uh, I, I guess, I shrugged. 
Of the 30 pages, six are warnings regarding the usage and what not to do with it, and what ways it could prove to be dangerous to the user, as well as anything placed within, and five more of how to troubleshoot in the event of a malfunction. It reached for the pad and swiped around. Now look at this one. Handing me the pad once more, I looked through it. My translator kicked in and told me that it was a manual for a microwave oven equivalent of the Mangrassi. It's, um, ten pages long, I muttered with a frown. It's ten pages long and explaining exclusively what it can do and how you control it to do those things it can do. The alien clicked its jaws with some degree of self-satisfaction. So, what? I muttered, frowning slightly as I did. What does that have to do with being unlucky? Don't you see? The alien clicked with excitement and frustration in equal measure. There is so much more humans can offer than just the idea of insurance. Like, what? Warning labels. I frowned, deepens. Warning labels? If it had eyelids, it would have blinked. Immediately it set out to flick through the pad. Amazing! A uniquely pictographic language intended for intuitively defining the dangers of object possessors to its users and environment. It skeeted to some sounds. How truly marvelous unlucky humans have been. This venture could very well revolutionize safety standards across the galaxy. That statement made me feel slightly uncomfortable as I wiggled on the spot. So, um, does this mean I get alone or... Alone? The alien laughed, if it was buzzing kind of way. Why, with this, I'd much rather we start a joint venture. I stared at the alien in mute shock, trying to piece together what I'd been told. But why... I have to blink and curse myself inwardly. Curse my curiosity. I mean, not to question a good thing, but why would you need me now that you know what to look for? Because I would mostly certainly need a human partner to be able to have the proper insight into humans' carefulness. You mean paranoia, I grunted. That made the alien stop and tilt his head. It is not paranoia if the danger exists, it corrected me. A moment passed, and it stretched out a claw towards me. What are you saying? I'm investing the capital, so 90-10 split on profits. Immediately, the business part of my brain kicks in. 60-40, I reply. And I'll pull some favors to see if some experts on these things would be interested in joining. 70-30, it replied. Pausing for a moment, I scratched my chin, considering I wouldn't need to invest a penny. It sounded like a good deal. But an idea crossed my head, and I struggled to keep from smirking. Fine, but I get to name the company. You have a deal, the alien stated as he took a hand and shook on it. I'll be drafting the official documents right away. Pausing and glanced at the data band, up to me. What name did you have in mind for our venture? I couldn't hide my grin anymore. Acme. End of story. Story number two. The Great Disappointment and the Terrifying Primitives Written by Simone Angela We were scared, you know. Like, really scared. We were fecking trembling and the Araxi fleet suddenly appeared inside Luna's orbit. The ships are very intimidating. What, with their thousands of laser turrets and fecking energy shields? They looked right out of a sci-fi apocalyptic film. They could just jump around our system like a drunk rabbit. That's why we were flabbergasted when, after the cassava net around Earth fired, not a single ship remained operational. Do you know how scared we were of advanced aliens? We were prepared to fight against someone on par with us technologically, but more advanced, we had no idea what to expect. 
We certainly weren't expecting the ships just to uh, crumble. We were confident, you know. The humans were primitives. There's no two ways about getting around this. They were still playing around with Alkabiri drives and orbital mechanics, not yet discovering the game-changing dark matter core technology that enables the Galactic Councils to have a reach and influence that it had. But the fact is, contrary to every other species, this was not a stopgap technology to wait for development of the drive to finish. No. They dreamed of the technology they achieved and built their entire military around it. You see, the Alkabiri drive is dependent on warping the space-time to erect a bubble around itself so as to isolate the ship from the universe, enabling her to achieve FTL by sheer weight of the virtual particles towing this bubble. It is a crude method that cannot work too close to a gravity well. So, for in-system travel, good old sublight drives are necessary. And the humans were masters of sublight warfare. Where our ships resemble plates to better distribute laser hits, and our shields tend to give the maximum visibility of our turrets, theirs, without exceptions, were guns. And whereas our ships relied on shields for protection against enemy fire, the human ships were covered in reflecting whipple shields wrapped around a blade of armor, defending both against hypervelocity kinetics and laser fire. And their weaponry. I shudder at the memory. After our defeat, we were rescued by one of their ships, and I managed to convince the naive crewman to give me a tour of the ship. Here is the transcript. Meraxi Gala. So, human John, what weapon did you use to so completely destroy our fleet? I assume you have a good cloaking tact on these ships of yours, as we did not see any ships nearby at the time. Human Ensign. No, oh, no, we, we don't have a cloaking tech. Hell, one of the first things they teach at the Academy is there is no stealth in space. No, that was simply the Kasaba net in action. Kasaba net? What do you mean? Well, uh, I don't think I can disclose too much, but essentially it's in orbit, uh, the entire orbit from the equatorial to polar, just filled with Kasaba howitzers, you know, in case something nasty comes to Earth's way. I'm afraid I am not familiar with that weapon. How would a howitzer work at planetary distances? I know, right? I also assumed that they were like the soil-bound version, but no... They are pretty different. Basically, they're just one megaton nukes used to transform a couple tons of tungsten into particle beam. What did you say your shields were tolerated for? I, uh, I never said that. Whatever. It's about 500 gigajoules. Above that, not even a zero-point generator can power one. And it's not like there's more powerful lasers than that. It's mostly to wear on the shield projector. That's the limit. Why this question? Well, uh... Let's say the energy inside the Kasaba particle stream is a tiny bit more than that. Like, if you consider a microsecond laser pulse, which you can as it is instantaneous and mostly energy, then you get to, um, oh, around 800 terajoules. What? <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't consume any power, since it is powered by a nuke. And we have as many shots as we have nukes, which... By the way, is a lot. Ever since we managed to get a megaton fusion warhead without the fission starter, we really went crazy for them. They're also so useful. And the range is amazing, you know. Regular dukes are boring in space because they follow a pesky square cube law. So, the effective range of even the most powerful is less than 10 kilometers. Basically, knife fighting distance. But Kasabas, pal, if you make one concentrated enough, 
You can write on the moon with 100 meter craters from low Earth orbit. That's almost 1.4 light seconds. What? No, yeah, I know, right? It's a call. I'm a huge nerd for nuclear devices. Anyway, you're lucky that we wanted your ships mostly intact. No, we would have used the guillotine boulders. I don't know if I want to know what those are. Oh, you'll like them. It's basically the same concept, only that the tungsten is a bit bigger and the nuke smaller and more distant. This means that instead of vaporizing the metal, it simply launches the whole 20 tons at 10 kilometers per second. The usual result is that the ship simply breaks in half. So it's called the Spine Crusher. Hey, Muddy, you're right. I don't think you're supposed to be that shade of purple. At this point, I faded, so the recording stopped. They rushed me to my ship's infirmary, and here I wrote down this report. Please, please do not retaliate. Do not anger them. They are not sane. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.